This is KABC Radio. I'm Jerry Nichols. Latest crime statistics released today show an alarming rise in violence. In the last five years, homicides in Los Angeles County are up 79%. Robberies are up 68%. Aggravated assault, another violent crime, shows an increase of 59%. Rapes have increased 61%, and lesser crimes are up too. Today, I spoke to Los Angeles Police Commissioner Herman Baldwin. The fear of crime has brought a deterioration of our community. It's almost as if we've been struck by enemy bombs. The number of citizens killed and maimed by criminal violence has produced in me a great and personal resolve. The only way we're going to win, make no mistake, this is a war. The only way we'll win is by assuming the offensive. Positive policing is the answer. We've got to deploy all our resources, or criminal violence will destroy our community. But what are the resources needed to diminish the alarming rise in crimes? There are those who say heavier prison sentences and an increased police facility are enough. Yeah, I'm one of them. There are others who believe that prison never cured anyone. And judging by the rise in violence, it never deterred anyone either. You want to know what was happening while you and Joanna were living it up in Maui or Cowie or Yowie, whatever it is? What? There were 15 murders the first week and 21 last week in this goddamn city. That's a lot. You know, decent people are going to have to work here and live somewhere else. By decent people, you mean people who can afford to live somewhere else. Oh, Christ. You are such a bleeding-heart liberal, Paul. My heart bleeds a little for the underprivileged, yeah. The underprivileged are beating our goddamn brains out. You know what I say? Stick them in concentration camps. That's what I say. Might amuse you, though. Being from New York, maybe you've never seen a club like this. It's a gun club. We shoot guns. It's a goddamn much hoopla from the gun control people. Half the nation's scared to even hold a gun. You know, like it was a snake who was gonna bite you or something. Hell, a gun and a gun's just a tool. Like a hammer or an axe. Wasn't long ago you used to put food on the table. Keep foxes out of the chicken coop. Rustlers off the range. Bandits out of the bank. Paul, how long since you held a pistol in your hand? A long time. Which war was yours, Korea? Yeah. See much action? Yeah, a little. Army infantry? I was a CO in a medical unit. Commanding officer, huh? Conscientious objective. <laughs> oh, Christ. What a guest to bring to a gun club. You're probably one of them knee-jerk liberals thinks us gun boys will shoot our guns because it's a, an extension of our penises. I never thought about it that way. It could be true. Or maybe it is. But this is gun country. Can't even own a handgun in New York City. Out here, I hardly know a man that doesn't own one. And I'll tell you something. Unlike your city, we can walk our streets and through our parks at night and feel safe. Muggers operating out here, they're just playing get their asses blown up. Thank Suppose this Paul... Because he is the vigilante. All right. Let's say that. We don't want him. Okay. Inspector, on my desk, I have a statistic red hot out of the computer. Mm -hmm. Bugging has gone down by how much, sir? 
950 a week to 470, he reported last week. You understand not too many people know that. And uh, you want to keep it that way, huh? Oh, no, we have to keep it that way, Inspector. This whole city would explode. We'd have vigilantes out in the street killing anybody who even looked greasy. You can see that. We want this man to quit, desist, go away, to stop. So the mugging rate can go up? By arrest him. Wouldn't that get him off the streets? My God, man, I don't want a martyr on my hands. All right. All right. I just want to hear you say it. It's probably having as much effect on the total crime picture as putting a Band-Aid on a leopard. I know, wait a minute, I don't know about that. I mean, a mugger's going to think twice about who he hits. Sure, they're hitting more old ladies, that's all. Well, that's all. Oh, how you doing? Let me get you drink. I'll tell you one thing, the guy's a racist. You notice he kills more blacks than whites. Oh, for Pete's sake, Harry, more blacks are muggers than whites. What do you want us to do, increase the proportion of white muggers who will have racial equality among muggers? Oh, no, no racial equality among muggers? Oh, I love it. Here's an incident. Great. Will here. Fires a 475 Wildy Magnum. Real stopping power. Is that like a 44 Magnum? No, a 44 Magnum is a pistol cartridge. But a 475 Wildy Magnum is a shorter version of the African big game cartridge. Makes a real mess. With as many as 90 shootings in a week, violent crime in Chicago is now at a 20-year high. While... But it's hard to escape the feeling that I failed. Failed to protect my wife. Failed to protect my daughter. Failed at the most important things a man does. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date thursday january excuse me january i got those j's confused june 2 thursday 2022 there we go june is not january thank goodness cow's book club third installment Catherine pelinero's absolute madness a true story of a serial killer race and a city divided. Several things I would question about that title. Uh, this is our third section or session on the book. We're picking up in the middle kind of of chapter five. Uh, the audio kind of <laughs> smash up that we heard at the beginning. Uh, she mentioned the movie or the film series Death Wish. Uh, in the text last week, uh, which stars uh, or the first five of them starred Charles Bronson uh, and then the sixth starred uh, Bruce Willis. Uh, so I said five. These films came out in 1974, 1982, 1985, 1987, 1994 and 2018. They'll probably have more to come. Important film in the annals of white cinema 
white supremacy, racism, white culture. Basically, all of these films are about a white man uh, who has his wife and or daughter raped, killed, physically assaulted in some way, generally sexually. Uh, it's generally by a gang. It's some sort of gang rape and assault uh, where the black males are very prominent. Uh, but that's basically the whole movie. Uh, gang rape happens. And then Charles Bronson, Paul Kersey, uh gets to get his gun and go out and kill in retribution. Uh, the sound clips that we heard, the great equalizer. The sound clip that we heard, well, explain them so it starts off uh went a little bit out of order i started with death wish three i actually had to waste invest like seven hours of my time to watch four of these films but i did get sound claps i was slightly aghast at several moments because the gang rapes are just it's pornography uh this is not you know cinema or anything like that it is just straight pornography and having every racist trope about black beast male rapists to have that. Oh, Larry Fishburne is one of the black male rapists, like blackish Matrix, Larry Fishburne boys in the hood black male rapist uh, I think he's in Death Wish 2 anyway, so the sound clips that we heard, they start off uh, I started off with Death Wish 3 uh, in Chicago where they're talking about the crime rates uh, and uh, you hear Paul Kersey talking to his boss or uh, one of his white co-workers who says man we got all this crime and everything you know what I say put them in concentration camps we go from there Kersey Charles Bronson he goes to the gun range played that clip uh, for Matt Greider when he was with us a few days ago they're at the gun range. He says, oh, you're one of those, you know, liberals and conscientious objector and all the rest of it. You know, you just probably think this gun is an extension of our penis, extension of our penis. And curses I never really thought of, but I guess it could be true. And then the white man at the gun range agrees. Well, yeah, I guess it could be true. Wellsing moment. And then gun country, bang, bang. Uh, we go from there. When he said blow their asses away, I even thought that was kind of homoerotic because I was still at the gun range. Anyway, uh, we go from there. All that's in Death Wish 1. The next scene is also from Death Wish 1. So you hear all of these white police officers and attorneys and what have you in New York. They're like, hey, we got this vigilante. He's been killing all these folks, mostly black males. He's been killing all these folks, but crime is down. Hey, Maybe we don't want to catch this guy. In fact, we don't want to catch this guy. You know, it'll it'll just make a martyr out of him. People are cheering about this guy and all the rest of it. Forget it. Just see if you can, you know, make him leave or something. I said, man, that reminded me, didn't we hear with Joseph Christopher that there were more than one white witness that didn't want to identify him, forgot to identify him, all this other stuff where he's getting all this, seeming like they don't really want to catch this guy. Goes from there, uh, also in Death Wish 1, 1974, they have a big party. Everybody is talking about 
Uh, the vigilante has been all over the news and in the magazine. Somebody's out here killing all of these people. Incidentally, before they get to this big party, uh, Charles Bronson is sitting and he's watching the footage where he's just killed these two black males and they're reporting that they were criminals and lowlifes and thugs and all the rest of it. And he slams down a magazine and on the front cover of the magazine, it has a picture, New York vigilante. And then it's got a noose hung over a stoplight. Now, who gets lynched? Hmm. Anyway, so they pivot from this magazine with the lynching on the front of it. Empty noose, but lynching. To this party scene with all white people. And they're talking about the vigilante. And they say, well, you know, he's got to be a racist, you know, because he's killing more black people. And you hear a white woman, interesting, interestingly, speak up. And she says, well, hey, hey, hey. There are more black muggers than white muggers. You know, what do you want us to do? Make racial equality amongst the muggers and make more white muggers? And a white person walks by and hears that and just thinks that's the funniest thing ever. Racial equality amongst the muggers. I love it. <laughs> Did you hear that? Racial equality amongst the <laughs> And Charles Bronson, uh, Paul Kersey, he is at this party. He's hearing all of this and he just goes uh, outside. Uh, we pivot from there. Death Wish 3 so they're going to go and they the guns get bigger and more guns as the series uh, evolves. So by the time we get to Death Wish 3, that's where you hear him explain. This is Wildy. Wildy is the 475 Wildy Magnum series. It uses the African big game cartridge. African big so you're using cartridges as though you're on safari in an African jungle to shoot at thugs and black people here in New York and Chicago in fact when he unveils Wildy as he affectionately calls this gun the great equalizer 475 Wildy Magnum as he unveils this the very first victim black male and and he blows him away what he said makes a big mess he blows this black male away and a crowd comes out to cheer and applaud like yeah yeah I hated that guy he stole my purse yeah no worthless negro yes 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 uh and the last segment uh, that we heard <clears throat> pivot all the way forward to 2018 Bruce Willis before all of his health problems resurrects Death Wish same synopsis his white wife and white daughter are sexually violated uh, his wife is killed his daughter is in a coma for a long time so he goes around uh, killing all of these people some of them white his uh, his wife and daughter uh, were assaulted by white people but whatever it was a it was a black male who got the information for them to be looted and everything anyway but the scene that we heard after this has happened before Bruce Willis starts these killings and he takes the same name Paul Kersey He's talking to a psychiatrist and he says, I feel like a failure as a man. I've failed in the most important ways that you are supposed to exercise your manhood. 
that gave me quite a bit of significance for this book and again this I gave you the dates of the films the first one was 1974 the second film came out in 1982 I have to look at the date to see had Joseph Christopher even been arrested by the time that the second installment in this series comes out featuring Lawrence Fishburne as a rapist gang rapist Again, she said in the tell, excuse me, that was in Matt Greider's book. It was theorized. Maybe the person who was going around and killing all these black people, maybe someone in their family was sexually wronged by a worthless Negro and he's taking vengeance. A la Death Wish. That there is white culture, folks. We will get started. In no way am I suggesting that anyone watch Death Wish. No way, no how. It is lame white supremacist cinema through and through. Reading way more important. Absolute Madness. Catherine Pellinero. Audio segment one. Dominic Putillero, the key witness to the Harold Green shooting, had been summoned to Cheektowaga Police Headquarters to work with an artist on refining the original composite. The sketch had been based on his estimate of the shooter's age at 30 to 35. But when the artist drew 30-something type age lines on the face, Dominic said the lines didn't belong, leading police to conclude that the suspect fit the early 20s age range. Dominic was unable to help when it came to hair color since the shooter had been wearing a hat. Chief Donovan held off on publicly releasing the new composite. It still looked too much like the first. He wanted to be as sure as possible this time. He hoped more witnesses would come forward, particularly any to the daylight shooting of Harold Green. Donovan shared the belief of his counterparts in Cheektowaga that there must be more witnesses, considering the time of day, sunny weather, and how crowded the area had been at the lunch hour. Russell Shabarasi had contacted Cheektowaga police and gave his account of the strange man wearing hunter-type clothing who had sped away in the red station wagon. Russell had noticed some hair sticking out from the man's hat. He described the hair as sandy, brownish-blonde, more blondish than dark, and it looked stringy, as if it hadn't been washed in a while. The man had a light complexion and medium build. He described the man's fishing hat and clothing as also looking rather dirty. Russell recalled the red station wagon as a late 1960s model, probably a Ford. The license plate may have had the numbers 194. This information seemed very pertinent. Russell's home was only a block or so away from the Burger King where Green had been shot. Once again, Via press conferences and the media, the police asked for the public's help. This time, they emphasized the need for specifics when it came to suspects, names, addresses, license plate numbers. They encouraged anyone who had been in the vicinity of the shootings to contact them with any information, no matter how insignificant it might seem. While they were eager to hear from potential witnesses, they also hoped to discourage the obviously pointless leads on guys who just happened to have blonde hair and might be a bit off-center. The police had enough to contend with just dealing with the folks who called in to report their grumpy neighbors, 
former spouses, and weird co-workers, all of which had to be checked out, just in case. Then there were the serial confessors, a peculiar though common phenomenon in high-profile murder cases, where individuals would, against all reason and logic, call the police, sometimes persistently, to turn themselves in. Scattered incidents of harassment and or vigilantism were an added drain. A white man complained to police that four young black men had pointed handguns at his car at the intersection of West Delavan and Delaware and accused him of being the twenty-two caliber killer. According to the complainant, the men had held him at gunpoint for several minutes before speeding off. Leo Donovan told the press that they still had no viable suspects or solid leads, but he felt that one thing that had been accomplished was the prevention of additional killings, thanks to the police departments and the media. In the same straightforward manner in which he shared information with the press, he had also pointedly expressed his resentment of the criticisms leveled at police and the allegation that the investigation had gotten off to a sluggish start. Donovan countered that the murder probe had been intensive from the start and remained so. He noted that the Buffalo Homicide Bureau had an exemplary record, with arrests upwards of 80% and a 90% conviction rate. In a gesture of conciliation, and perhaps realizing that alienating the police department at the beginning of a major multiple homicide investigation that had already attracted national attention was not the smartest move. The Courier Express made a 180-degree turn from their editorial of the previous day and ran a small piece praising the dogged and devoted round-the-clock work of the Buffalo Homicide Squad under the direction of Chief Leo Donovan. Not surprisingly, Richard Arcara's dictate that no one would be in charge of the twenty-two caliber killer investigation caused problems from the start. As is often the case with leaderless collaborations, it wasn't panning out as the seamless team effort that Arcara had apparently envisioned. The Thursday meeting called by Erie County District Attorney Edward Cosgrove was attended by officials from all three police agencies, as well as the state police, Erie and Niagara County Sheriff's Departments, the U.S. Attorney, and Niagara County District Attorney's Office. Donovan and Cosgrove clashed over the latter's call for a news blackout. Cosgrove wanted to appoint Joseph Mordino, an assistant DA and chief of the Violent Felony Offense Bureau, as legal coordinator and spokesman. The idea was that Mordino would have sole responsibility for the release of any information regarding the progress of the investigation. Police would not communicate directly with the media. Donovan objected. If he felt that releasing information to the media would help solve the murders, he would do so. Nor was the idea well received by members of the media, who had waited for more than two hours outside the closed-door meeting and were informed of this decision via a press release read by a secretary. Most of the meeting attendees left through a side door in order to avoid questions. When reporters were finally able to reach Joseph Mordino for comments, he had none, except to say, I'm just getting information today and I'm in the process of digesting it. When they asked police officials about the meeting and the investigation, they dutifully referred the reporters back to Mordino. Of course, 
the reporters had their sources anyway, one of whom said that the meeting had consisted mostly of drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, and shooting the bull, which the reporter duly noted in Friday's newspaper. The news blackout was rescinded the next day. In lifting the gag order, Edward Cosgrove said that Joseph Mordino would continue as legal coordinator, but that the police agencies could speak for themselves. Cosgrove also nixed the hypnotist that Chictawaga police wanted to bring in for their witness to the Harold Green shooting. Hypnotism had to be handled very carefully, he explained, performed only by a licensed physician with the highest credentials in such a practice. Otherwise, any suspect picked out of a lineup by a witness who had undergone hypnosis might not be admissible in court. A remarkable, though erroneous, report on the twenty-two caliber killings made the national news on that Friday night, October 3rd. On the CBS Evening News, Walter Cronkite told viewers that Joseph Paul Franklin, wanted in six states for a series of sniper attacks on black men, was a top suspect in the Buffalo area shootings. That's just not true, said Leo Donovan. It had already been discovered that Franklin had checked into a motel in Florence, Kentucky on September 23rd, the day of the Green and Thomas murders, making his presence in Buffalo at the time of the shootings an impossibility. Donovan remained firm in his belief that the shooter was a local man. To that end, and on the basis of tips and profiles of persons with known racist inclinations, detectives had questioned twelve potential suspects on Friday. None had panned out. Police were also in the process of checking out approximately 2,500 older model blue cars registered in western New York in the hope of finding the one used by the killer in his escape after shooting Emmanuel Thomas. As the weekend progressed, with no promising developments, and the phone tips slowed considerably, Leo Donovan gave serious thought to an unconventional method of tracking the killer. The news director for TV station WKBW had previously approached Donovan about calling in the services of psychics. The station had vetted several with successful track records in helping solve homicide cases and had found two individuals in Chicago, one a psychic, the other an astrologer, who would waive their professional fees. If the chief would agree to meet with them, WKBW would cover their travel expenses. Feeling it couldn't hurt, and well aware of the brick wall his detectives had hit in the investigation, Donovan agreed. The mystics flew into Buffalo and met with Donovan for several hours on Monday. They were taken to the crime scenes. They handled the victim's clothing and the twenty-two caliber cartridge cases. They told the police that the weapon used in the homicides was potentially available to them. It was buried in a plastic bag behind a maintenance building in a cemetery. The spot was marked with a brown or tan stone approximately eight inches wide, with two quartz-like stripes running through it. They gave the police a general area where the cemetery was located, adding that it was in a poor state of repair. When reporters asked Donovan why he had agreed to such an unorthodox mode of investigation, he said, We don't have much to go on in this case. I'm sorely in need of information and direction, and I'm receptive to any and all information that comes in, no matter what the source, 
if it eventually leads to the killer. Donovan added that the psychic, a woman, had made a drawing of the killer that was not too far off the new composite sketch police had been working on for a week. Officers spent the following day searching various cemeteries. They found nothing. Following their meeting on Monday with Chief Donovan, the psychic and the astrologer had been eager to return to Chicago. There's a criminal out there who was a murderer. If he knows we're on his trail, we can be knocked off too, the psychic explained. They asked the media not to use their names until they were out of town. Thirteen days had passed since the 36-hour killing spree that had taken four lives. Phone tips had all but dried up. The public furor and panic had subsided. With no real leads and nothing new to go on, detectives revisited the same ground, hoping to turn up anything that might have been overlooked. Officers who had been hurriedly added to the investigation at its height were quietly reassigned to other cases. As the sun set on Tuesday, October 7th, with the sudden strange rash of murders now two weeks behind them, the people of western New York perhaps slept a bit more peacefully beneath the waning crescent moon, never suspecting that the worst was yet to come. Chapter 6 October 8th through the 19th 1980. On the night of Tuesday, October 7th, Parlor Edwards said goodnight to his lady friend, Aileen Carr, at 7.45, and got in the driver's seat of his brown checker taxicab. He pulled away from Aileen's house at 1102 Ellicott Street in Buffalo and drove off for another night of work. He mentioned to Aileen that he had a special that night, meaning a regular customer whom he was to pick up at the suburban Depew train station at 2.30 a.m. Though she gave it no thought at the time, Aileen assumed that Parler would spend the earlier part of the night at the train and bus stations in downtown Buffalo, where he typically began his evening shifts in search of fares. As Aileen would later tell investigators, Parler was very predictable a man with structured, routine ways and little variation in his schedule or habits. When Parler left her home on Tuesday night, Aileen had every expectation of seeing him the next morning at 8 a.m., when he would pick her up to take her to work, and then again at 5, after her workday, to drive her home again, as he did every Tuesday through Saturday. Even with his late special fare at 2.30 a.m., Aileen felt sure that Parler would be at home on time the next morning, as always. Parlor W. Edwards was 71 years old. Though he was diabetic and had had a rather serious health crisis a year earlier that had landed him in the VA hospital for a time, he was a fit and strong man. He stayed active and controlled his diabetes with a strict diet and abstention from alcohol. In more ways than one, Parlor was a man who knew how to take care of himself an army veteran and former factory worker. Parler stood five feet nine and a half inches tall and weighed 172 pounds. His gray-black hair was close-cropped with some frontal balding, and he sported a short, trim mustache. He came from the hard-scrabble black neighborhoods of Buffalo's Lower East Side, and for some years had lived in the neighborhood northeast of downtown called the Fruit Belt, so named because of the orchards that had once graced the landscape 
and its longitudinal streets that bore names such as grape, orange, lemon, and so on. Parler and his wife had raised six children here. Aileen Carr and Parler Edwards had been friends for thirty-five years. They had grown particularly close in the last five years, after Parler's wife died of cancer in 1975. Parler had retired from factory work the same year. Though he drew pensions from both the plant and the army, Parler had purchased a taxi almost immediately after his retirement and embarked on a late career as a cab driver, typically working seven days a week and almost always at the same familiar haunts. One of his steady stops was the Howard Johnson's restaurant at 4215 Genesee Street in Chictawaga, across from the Buffalo International Airport. The staff at Howard Johnson's new parlor is a regular customer. The overnight waitress saw him in the restaurant in the early morning hours of Wednesday, October 8th, as did a fellow cabbie. Parlor was sitting at the counter around 1.30 or 1.45 a.m. His cab was parked out front. Later, no one would recall exactly when he left. At 2.25 a.m., the train from Chicago to Buffalo pulled into the Depew train station on Dick Road, three miles south of the airport. An elderly man named Robert Harley stepped off the train. As he entered the terminal, he was surprised to find that his ride home was not waiting for him. That was odd. Robert and Parlor Edwards had been friends for decades, going back to the Depression era. Robert made regular business trips to Chicago, and Parler always drove him to and from the train station. As Robert Harley would later tell police, Parler had driven him to the train station on October 3rd for his trip to Chicago, and they had arranged that Parler would pick him up upon his return on October 8th. Parler had never been late, much less a no-show, which is why Robert waited for him at the station for quite some time, hours, in fact, during which he had repeatedly called Parler's home phone. It rang and rang. As daylight dawned with still no sign of Parler and no answer by phone, Robert concluded that for whatever reason, Parler Edwards was not coming to pick him up. He called for another cab and went home. At 8.20 a.m. on Wednesday, October 8th, a woman named Patricia Kramer pulled into the parking lot of her employer at 195 Sug Road in Chictawaga. Patricia worked for Ecology and Environment, Inc., an environmental management firm located at Airport Industrial Estates, a lonely, secluded industrial complex that stood in the shadow of the Buffalo International Airport. Stepping out of her car, Patricia noticed red liquid under her driver's side door. Thinking that her car was leaking some type of fluid, Patricia took a closer look. She went to the passenger's side and saw more red liquid on the pavement and more in front of her car. This had obviously not come from her vehicle. It looks like someone had dumped red paint in the parking lot. Patricia went inside to her office. After settling in at her desk, she went to her boss to let him know about the mess in the parking lot. She was telling him about the red paint stains when co-worker John Ronaldo overheard and said that he too had noticed the strange crimson puddles when he had arrived for work that morning. To him, they had looked like blood. That seemed outrageous, though. This out-of-the-way industrial park was hardly the place where anyone would expect to find something so gruesome. 
there had to be another explanation. A few employees went outside to look again, deciding that it might actually be blood, if so, quite a large quantity, and feeling very ill at ease, they hurried inside to alert manager Donald Zangerly, who came out to look for himself. Zangerly agreed. The viscous red puddles looked like blood. At 9.14 a.m., he called the Cheektowaga Police Department. Officers arrived within minutes and were shown the area in question, at the extreme south parking lot of the facility. The officers observed the pools. They also spotted what appeared to be several teeth and bone fragments. They immediately secured the scene and contacted their headquarters to request assistance of the Detective Bureau. At 9.30 a.m., Captain George Cole and Detective Ronald Selbert of the Cheektowaga Police arrived, soon joined by three other detectives, including Detective Lieutenant Thomas Rowan, commanding officer of the Cheektowaga Police Department Scientific Investigation Unit. The partial remains spotted by the first officers at the scene were indeed human, leaving little doubt that the blood must be as well. There were six tooth fragments and seven bone fragments that Rowan identified as from a skull. In close vicinity were torn pieces of cloth, shattered plastic buttons, and a white tissue stained with blood. Something terrible had happened here. But to whom? And where was the victim? The industrial park was surrounded by fields and shrubbery. Behind the parking lot, to the south, were two sets of Conrail railroad tracks running east and west. The blood and bone were at the southeastern edge of the lot, a little more than a thousand feet from the paved portion of Sug Road. A drain, located less than thirty feet from the railroad tracks, was also surrounded by blood. The pavement bore bloody tire impressions trailing away from the site onto a gravel road that connected the parking lot with Sug Road. The Cheektowaga police immediately began collecting physical evidence and launched a search of the area, including the adjacent fields and railroad tracks. Judging by the carnage, they anticipated finding a body rather than a live victim. They found neither. But in a brush area just off the south edge of the parking lot, where it appeared that several branches had been broken off, they did find a three-quarter-inch metal pipe measuring about twenty inches long. The pipe was stained with blood and hair. Detectives questioned the employees of ecology and environment. Patricia Kramer could add nothing beyond her discovery of the liquid under her car that she had initially mistaken for red paint. The first employee had arrived at 7.10 a.m. He had parked near the middle of the lot and did not see the red pools. The parking lot had been deserted with the exception of two cars belonging to employees of ecology and environment that had been parked there for a number of weeks. He had opened the building as usual and had observed nothing out of the ordinary. John Ronaldo had arrived at work shortly after 8 a.m. and parked in his usual spot in the south side lot near the drain. He had backed his car up against the brush in the vicinity of the railroad tracks. Upon exiting his vehicle, he had noticed the red stains on the ground. He also noticed that the weeds at the edge of the parking lot had been knocked down somewhat, as if possibly a car had been stuck there. 
None of the other employees had seen anything amiss prior to their two co-workers alerting them to the red substance in the lot. The Allen Bradley Company shared the same building, and their employees were questioned as well, with the same results. No one had seen any suspicious persons or vehicles that morning. The night maintenance man for Allen Bradley hadn't noticed anyone or anything unusual the previous evening. One employee at Ecology and Environment told police that the day before, sometime between 1 and 2 p.m., she had looked out her office window and saw a white male walking on the railroad tracks. She described him as 5 feet 10 to 6 feet, medium build, wearing a red and black checkered wool jacket, carrying a club or baseball bat. She could only see him from the waist up because of the brush between the building and the tracks. He appeared to be always looking at the ground and walking back and forth toward Sug Road and back in the opposite direction. Ecology and Environment had a night shift, and police questioned the three employees who had worked the night of October 7th. All three had parked close to the building some distance from where the blood and bone fragments were discovered the next morning, and had neither seen nor heard anything out of the ordinary. Because the area was so dark and isolated at night, the building alarm system was always activated when night shift employees were present, meaning that the alarm company had to be notified whenever someone entered or left the building. All employees had left either at or shortly after 11 p.m., locking and securing the building behind them. They advised police that the parking lot was not lit at night and that the area where the blood was found would have been extremely dark, and therefore they probably would not have seen anything on the ground if it had been there at the time. All of them felt, however, that they would have noticed any suspicious persons or vehicles in the area, because that corner of the lot was usually vacant during the night. It seemed that no one had witnessed anything abnormal until the daylight discovery of the red puddles. Employees at airport industrial estates were not the only ones who found something out of place when they arrived for work that morning. At the Cayuga Road overpass of the Interstate 90 Thruway in the town of Amherst, some two miles southwest of the industrial park and about a dozen miles from downtown Buffalo, two laborers from Simonelli Construction had noticed something unusual, though not nearly as jolting. At least, not at first. At 7.10 a.m., workers spotted a taxi cab parked in some brush on a thruway access road by their construction site. They thought little of it at first, although it was an unusual place for a car to be parked. The access road, which ran parallel to the thruway, was not an actual road, but rather had been cleared out just a few days prior to facilitate movement of equipment back and forth along the thruway at the construction site. The cab had not been there when they had left work the previous afternoon. A few hours later, when the taxi still had not been moved, construction superintendent Thomas Zhirwanka went down to take a closer look. The vehicle looked abandoned. He saw no one inside. Walking around to the rear, Zhirwanka saw what looked like blood on the trunk and rear bumper. He reported it to his office and to a thruway toll collector, who called the New York State Police. Trooper E.J. Ryback responded to the scene at 10.20 a.m. 
he noted the vehicle, a 1979 brown checker taxicab, had apparently been abandoned just off the access road, approximately 120 feet down an embankment on the north side of the thruway at milepost 419. It appeared that the taxi had been driven off of the access road into an area of heavy brush and trees in an attempt to conceal it from view. Two small trees had been cut down and placed across the taxi. Ryback noticed the bloody marks on the back of the vehicle as well as a piece of clothing protruding from the trunk. Investigator Thomas Rash of the New York State Police BCI, Bureau of Criminal Investigation, arrived at 10.50 a.m. Trooper Rash forced open the trunk of the taxi with a crowbar. He took one look and advised his fellow troopers to secure the scene and contact the Erie County Medical Examiner. A deceased black male was lying on his left side in a fetal-like position, knees drawn up, with the upper portion of his body facing upward. His head was resting on the spare tire on the passenger's side, with his feet toward the driver's side. He was fully dressed, wearing brown pants, a blue shirt, and a dark blue jacket with black shoes and white socks. He wore a silver wristwatch and a gold wedding band on the ring finger of his left hand. His body was awash in blood. There were severe traumatic injuries to his head and face. The right side of his skull was crushed. His lifeless right eye was open, pupil, in mid-dilation. The left eye was perforated. A large gaping wound in his left chest extended from just above the nipple to his mid-abdominal region. The body was in full rigor, a frozen portrait of ghastly, violent death. The taxicab registration belonged to Parlor W. Edwards, 208 Grape Street, Buffalo. Vehicle registration did not prove the identity of the victim, of course, but it certainly gave police a starting point. In addition to state troopers, Amherst police officers were also present, since the murdered man had been found within the town limits. The Buffalo Homicide Squad was contacted. Chief Leo Donovan and Detective John Ludka arrived at the scene at 12.50 p.m., shortly after medical examiner Edmund Gisowitz. Chief Donovan and Dr. Gisowitz examined the body. In addition to the massive injuries noted by state troopers, they discovered that several of the victim's teeth were broken off and missing. When the body was lifted from the trunk, a wallet was found directly beneath. It contained no money but was stuffed with personal papers and documents in the name of Parlor Edwards, bolstering a tentative identification of the victim. Word had filtered through that the Chictawaga police were investigating the scene of an apparently violent assault, sans a body, but with tooth and bone fragments, in the parking lot of the nearby airport industrial estates. Officers from all three municipalities, along with the New York State Police, traveled the two miles back and forth between locations to make comparisons and determine if this was a single crime with two crime scenes, one where the victim had been killed, the other where the body had been left. Among the State Police present were Captain Henry F. Hank Williams, area commander of the BCI, and Raymond P. Sam Slade, one of the Bureau's most noted senior investigators. Less than 24 hours earlier, on the night of Tuesday, October 7th, Hank Williams and Leo Donovan had attended a contentious three-hour meeting organized by BUILD, 
Build Unity, Independence, Liberty, and Dignity, an activist group dedicated to protecting and enriching the lives of black citizens. Held at the Build Town Hall on Main Street in Buffalo, the meeting had more than 250 people in attendance and included representatives from 38 different community groups. Daniel Acker had been there, along with other prominent local civil rights leaders, and Councilman David Collins, who represented Buffalo's Maston District on the east side. Erie County Undersheriff Thomas Higgins and Michael Lennon, Executive Assistant to District Attorney Edward Cosgrove, had also attended. Though the overall atmosphere in the community appeared to have stabilized in the two weeks since the twenty-two caliber killings, the mood at the Build Town Hall gathering demonstrated that, at least in some quarters, suspicion, mistrust, fear, and anger abounded. Much of it was directed against police, governmental authorities, the media, and even fellow black citizens who were not, in the opinion of the organizers, adequately uniting and giving the matter the serious attention that they should. Ire against law enforcement and officialdom was palpable. Rebukes ran the gamut from frustration to outright acrimony. Veiled accusations of incompetence were voiced, along with insinuations that the killer hadn't been apprehended yet because authorities just didn't care. In response to speakers who declared that the twenty-two caliber killings were part of a plot to eliminate black people, an attendee named Aris Khan said, It has been a plot for four hundred years, and the media have perpetrated the plot. Khan described himself as a Buffalonian who had an interest in bringing unity among black citizens. He called for a boycott against any black-supported community groups, churches, and businesses that had not sent representatives to the meeting. The organizers had four proposals they wished law enforcement to adopt. The first was the promise of an intensive investigation into the Ku Klux Klan and other neo-Nazi groups in the Buffalo area. Several speakers asserted that if KKK members and neo-Nazis had been sent to jail years ago, as had happened during law enforcement efforts to quash the Black Panther Party in the late 1960s and early 70s, blacks would not be under threat from white hate groups. Despite the absence of any hard evidence, a conclusion had been reached by some that the murders were a coordinated effort by multiple assassins rather than the work of a rogue killer. The Reverend Charlie H. Fisher, executive director of BUILD, referred to the murders as part of an international conspiracy. Chief Donovan told attendees that the intelligence squad of the Buffalo Police Department had been conducting just such a probe in the wake of the killings, but had not uncovered any ongoing activity of the KKK or other hate groups. The second proposal called for the establishment of a People's Commission on Violence Against Black Persons. The third, a task force made up of African-American police officers that would, according to Build State of Affairs Committee Vice President Ernestine Robinson, go into action when black citizens came under attack by forces that continued to elude the law. The fourth proposal was to establish funding of anti-crime programs that had formerly been funded by the United States Law Enforcement Assistance Administration but had since been discontinued in Buffalo and other parts of the country.
the law enforcement officials agreed to discuss the proposals with their superiors. This did little to bolster faith, however, particularly for those who felt they were dealing with a long-standing endemic problem in the system rather than a current crime wave. The criticisms had irked District Attorney Edward Cosgrove. He knew the number of man-hours and the resources devoted to the investigation. Cosgrove also well knew both the competence of Leo Donovan's homicide squad and the inherent difficulties of solving the type of hit-and-run, stranger-on-stranger violence that the twenty-two caliber case presented. Fear and anger were understandable, but they were not the ideal platform for a solution. On the contrary, denunciations and hostile rhetoric could mobilize the community in all the wrong ways. Edward C. Cosgrove, 46, was in his second term as District Attorney of Erie County. Over the six years since his first election to the office in 1974, Cosgrove had amassed an impressive record. His office had successfully prosecuted a wide array of challenging cases, from organized crime homicides to municipal corruption in the town of Cheektowaga, to the investigation and prosecution of a particularly sensitive and high-profile death of a man named Richard Long at the hands of some off-duty Buffalo police officers. He had established an organized crime and special investigation bureau for sting operations, a police council program, and an arson task force, along with fending off attempts by the county legislature to reduce his personnel through budget cuts. Cosgrove had, in fact, increased the number of assistant district attorneys under his command from 65 to its current number of 76. While the population had diminished, crime had not. The annual caseload had risen from 30,900 in 1974 to 41,000 in 1979. The conviction rate under Cosgrove could be described as excellent. Always priding himself on being a man of law and order, Ed Cosgrove had spent two years as a special agent in the FBI following his graduation from Georgetown University Law School in 1959, before returning to hometown Buffalo to enter private law practice. A group of New York congressmen had nominated District Attorney Cosgrove to President Jimmy Carter for director of the FBI in 1977. The same year, he had been selected Outstanding Citizen by the Buffalo Evening News, an honor that was all the more significant, considering Cosgrove was not a man who went out of his way to engage with the press. His most frequent public comment on investigations was the proverbial no comment. He had an aversion to leaks, particularly of misinformation and what he viewed as too much information. As district attorney, he understood public interest in high-profile cases and tried to steer a steady course along the sometimes ambiguous line between the public's right to know and the need for confidentiality. Cosgrove was still mulling the feedback he'd been given from the previous night's build meeting when he learned of the gruesome discoveries in Amherst and Cheektowaga. From what he was being told, the circumstances of this crime were entirely different from the shootings. Still, they had another murdered black man in Erie County, one who had apparently suffered a particularly violent death. And Edward Cosgrove understood immediately, as did Captain Williams and Chief Donovan, 
and all of their colleagues how explosive the news of this latest murder could be. This time he would not send an assistant, or wait for reports from police, or allow others to inform him of their observations or developments. Ed Cosgrove left his office in downtown Buffalo and drove to the scene. The body was taken to the Erie County morgue, accompanied by two BCI investigators. State troopers and Amherst police took possession of the cab and had it towed to the state police barracks for processing, while dozens of officers and technicians combed both crime scenes, including the route in between the two locations, searching, documenting, collecting evidence, and anything that might be evidence. The two state police investigators who accompanied the body to the morgue made a cursory examination of the victim that included an inventory of items on his person and in the wallet that had been found underneath him in the trunk of the cab. In addition to the gold wedding band and blood-soaked silver wristwatch that had been noted at the scene, the deceased also wore a gold ring on his right ring finger. In his left front pants pocket, there was $74 in cash, $44 in American currency and 30 in Canadian bills, the latter clasped in a metal money clip, an additional $20, American, soaked in blood and wrapped in an Erie County Savings Bank calendar, was found in his left shirt pocket. The wallet was stuffed with documents, in addition to a standard driver license, a taxicab driver license, and vehicle registrations for the 1979 Checker taxicab, all in the name of Parlor W. Edwards. There were check stubs, bank receipts, credit cards a Marine Midland bank cash card, a VA patient data card, membership and discount cards, a social security plate, again, all in the name of Parlor W. Edwards, and a variety of business cards from local businesses, including three different attorneys in downtown Buffalo. There were also several scraps of paper with names and phone numbers written on them. An autopsy was scheduled for 5 p.m. Meanwhile, Two state police investigators were sent to 208 Grape Street in an effort to make a possible identification of the victim and notify next of kin. They found no one at home. Leo Donovan and Detective John Ludka had proceeded to the morgue after visiting the crime scene in Cheektowaga. Ludka began calling the phone numbers found in the wallet and was able to reach a man who identified himself as a friend of Parlor Edwards. He agreed to try to contact the family. At around 4 p.m., two of Parlor Edwards's adult children, a son and a daughter, and one of his brothers, arrived at the Grape Street address. The state police informed them of the death of Parlor Edwards. The family members would be taken to the morgue to make a positive identification of the body following the autopsy. Parlor Edwards had been stabbed at least seven times. Each of these wounds had been made with a very sharp knife, and all were rendered with remarkable force. He had one stab wound in the upper left side of his back, one inch left of center, that measured at least five and a half inches deep, extending into his chest cavity and piercing the left lobe of his lung all the way through. A knife had been thrust once in the left side of his neck, deep enough to incise the underlying bone. Four stab wounds were found on the top of his head, one on the right, 
and three in his left scalp, all four cutting into the bones of the skull. Associate Medical Examiner Dr. Catherine Lloyd noted that the three stab wounds on the left side of Edwards's head were close together and overlay the blunt trauma fractures. This meant that the knife wounds had been inflicted after the bludgeoning. Edwards had sustained eight wounds with a blunt instrument to his head and face, all of which had been administered with savage force. Two blows on the back of his head, one in the midline and another behind his right ear, had both penetrated the underlying bone, shattering some of it to particles. There was a missing triangular section of skull through which brain fragments protruded. A massive strike on the right side of his forehead had crushed that part of his skull. He had been hit again next to his right eye, while another blow had shattered the bridge of his nose. There were two injuries on the left side of his face, one just above his eyelid, the other perforating his left eye. A fierce blow to his mouth had knocked out several teeth by the roots. Edwards had defensive wounds on both of his upper limbs. There were abrasions on the backs of several of his fingers, mainly on his right hand. A small knife wound was present at the tip of his right thumb. There were contusions on his lips and right cheek, abrasions on both buttocks. His stomach contained a large quantity of partly digested food. The largest and most distinctive wound on the body was the enormous, gaping laceration on the left side of his chest. Designated as knife wound number seven by the M.E., the jagged gash was at least five and a half inches long and one and a half inches wide, exposing part of the left lung. When the jagged edges were brought together, it appeared the wound could have been caused by three separate overlying thrusts of a knife. Three of his ribs had been excised, and a portion of one rib was missing. The wound extended as far as the heart. The pericardium had been cut on the left side with a single laceration. Two clean cuts had been made through the aorta. The pulmonary artery and veins had been incised. Only part of the heart remained. The rest was gone. This last wound had been inflicted post-mortem, apparently with the express purpose of removing the heart. Cause of death was exsanguination, blood loss due to multiple injuries. The director of dentistry for the Erie County Medical Center examined the mouth and jaws of the victim. In total, there were seven teeth missing, which he compared to the six tooth fragments recovered in the parking lot. He concluded, beyond any reasonable doubt, that the specimens are the fragments of teeth from the mouth of Parlor Edwards. A forensic anthropologist confirmed soon after that the recovered pieces of bone matched the fractures in the victim's head, positively identifying them as outer table skull fragments of the skull of Parlor Edwards. Present at the autopsy were seven police officers from four different agencies. The cab and body had been found on state thruway property in the town of Amherst, thus involving both the New York State Police and Amherst Police Department. The site of the attack in the parking lot of airport industrial estates was within the town limits of Cheektowaga. The Buffalo Police Department had been alerted because of the ongoing investigation of the twenty-two caliber killings. 
Leo Donovan and two of his homicide detectives attended the autopsy. Despite the vast dissimilarity between this murder and the shootings, there was still the similarity, or at least pseudo-similarity, of the victim. From the moment of the discovery of the cab and body, a decision had been made that all four police agencies would collaborate on this investigation. Dozens of officers were scouring the crime scenes for recovery of evidence, now to include a search for the victim's heart. Among the law enforcement at the autopsy was Detective Lieutenant Thomas Rowan of the Cheektowaga Police. Rowan would long remember the sense of gravitas and foreboding that hung over the room. As he recalled it, we had all been at many autopsies by that time in our careers, more so Leo Donovan, who had certainly attended hundreds. But this was so atypical, so beyond the pale of anything we had encountered before. The gravity of what we were dealing with was not lost on anybody. It's easy to shoot somebody. It's more difficult to stab someone. When it comes to dismemberment, it takes someone who is psychologically on the evil side of the spectrum. Way on the other side of the bell curve of types of offenders. We all understand the impact of having a person or persons out there capable of doing something like this. There was a heavy pall over the room for both the brutality that had been inflicted on this man and also because we all understood immediately what the future was looking like. One of the looming questions, of course, was whether this murder was connected to the twenty-two caliber killings. If so, it represented an escalation in violence that was as bewildering to contemplate as it was horrifying. We couldn't dismiss any possibilities at this point. Until we learned what the physical evidence would show, we couldn't rule out anything. Physical evidence, both the collection and scientific analysis of it, was Rowan's area of expertise. While other investigators persuaded witnesses and suspects to speak, Rowan coaxed a voice out of forensic evidence. Though he was only twenty-eight years old, Tom Rowan had attained the rank of commanding officer of his department's scientific investigation unit. He had joined the Cheektowaga police in 1974 two years after earning his bachelor's degree in imaging technology from the Brooks Institute in Santa Barbara, California. His plan had been to work for the NASA space program, as many of his fellow grads had done. Instead, he had returned to his hometown and put his considerable training and skills to work in law enforcement. Having a scientific background had worked to his benefit at a time when crime scene processing was on the cusp of incorporating more advanced technologies. Few police officers had been trained in scientific methodologies, and Rowan's unique background and meticulous adherence to scientific procedures had allowed him to advance rapidly through the ranks. He was frequently called in to collaborate on complex cases with his science-oriented colleagues at the Central Police Services Lab in Buffalo. He was already well familiar with the twenty-two caliber investigation, since he had processed the crime scene of the Harold Green shooting, which had occurred in Cheektowaga. Prior to coming to the morgue late that afternoon, Tom Rowan had spent the day overseeing the collection and handling of evidence at the airport industrial estate's crime scene and had assisted Detective Lieutenant Michael Melton, 
his close colleague and counterpart in the Amherst Police Department, at the side of the cab. A massive amount of material had already been collected. Blood samples, fingerprints, tire and shoe impressions, and every bit of debris within a wide radius of both locations. At Rowan's direction, portions of the parking lot stained with forensic evidence were jackhammered out. He and Detective Melton had photographed both scenes, as had a state trooper. The stomach contents of Parlor Edwards obtained at the autopsy were turned over to him for analysis. Tom Rowan returned to his lab where he spent a long night, the first of many, as it turned out, examining evidence, listening for the story it would tell him. His colleagues were meanwhile listening to what the people closest to Parlor Edwards could tell them. Parlor's family had led them to his close friend Aileen Carr, who gave them an account of the perfectly routine evening she and Parlor had spent the night before, his habits, and his schedule. Though Parlor lived at his Grape Street address, he spent most of his non-working time with Aileen, mainly at her home. Parlor's schedule really never wavered, she said. He drove his cab all day while she was at work, then they would have dinner together at her house, watch the TV news, and then Parlor would go out to work again. He typically worked till midnight and would always tell Aileen if he had a special fare that would keep him out later, as had been the case the previous night. Parlor only had two specials. One was a lady who lived in the suburbs. The other was Robert Harley, the retired businessman who made regular trips to Chicago. Aileen described her social life with Parlor as very simple mostly just leisurely rides in his cab on the rare occasions he took a day off. Sometimes they would take a drive to Fort Erie, Canada, and eat at a Chinese restaurant or visit his relatives. Parlor was tight with his money, Aileen said, but he would buy gifts for special occasions such as birthdays or Christmas. He really didn't talk about his financial affairs, but Aileen believed he was receiving two or three monthly checks from the Army including a disability pension. He also collected a pension from the plant in North Buffalo in addition to his Social Security and whatever he earned as a cab driver. She mentioned that he usually kept large amounts of money on him, anywhere from $700 to $800, and he was in the practice of cashing checks for fares and friends. Aileen could offer no suspects or leads for the murder. She described Parlor as a very good and decent man, very dependable, a wonderful father who was close to his children. According to Aileen, there had been no change in Parlor's lifestyle or behavior in the weeks leading up to his murder. Tuesday, October 7th, had been like any other day. Parlor Edwards did seem to have a very patterned life. Police spoke with other cabbies, skycaps, and employees at the depots and at the airport, all the locations Aileen had mentioned. A number of them had seen Parlor in his cab at various times throughout the night in the usual places. One cabbie who had been parked behind him alongside the Greyhound bus terminal in downtown Buffalo recalled that Parlor got a fare at about 9.15 p.m. that may have been one or two passengers possibly white, but all he could remember for sure was a tan suitcase. When asked how he could recall the color of the suitcase but not the number or race of the riders, 
he replied that he judged fares as good or bad tippers on whether they did or didn't have luggage. No one had noticed Parler pick up any suspicious-looking fares. It was also mentioned to investigators that Parler was not the type to take chances that way. Parler Edwards was very streetwise, cautious, and savvy, not the sort to let his guard down. Moreover, he carried a heavy lead pipe under the front seat of his cab for protection. Parler's kids had also mentioned the lead pipe that their father kept in his cab. They said it sometimes rolled out from beneath the driver's seat onto the floor. Parler's special fare, Robert Harley, likewise said that his longtime friend was a streetwise guy and nobody's fool. Like Aileen, he stressed that Parler was a good and honest man, a non-drinker, and he could think of no one who would want to harm him. Police interviewed the overnight crew at the Depew train station, who confirmed the arrival of the train from Chicago at 2.25 a.m., as well as Robert Harley's account that he had waited at the station for hours. No one at the station had seen Parler Edwards, however. He apparently never made it there. Never made it there. Context of white supremacy. So that's what we'll pick up at. Uh, we are in chapter 6. Uh, so the next paragraph, the victim had such regular habits that police were quickly able to trace virtually all of his whereabouts. That's what we'll pick up at in chapter 6. Context of white supremacy. Uh, the number to dial if you have commentary to share on our first session of Absolute Madness, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Email address until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com feel free to write out your thoughts questions as we are moseying along through the book the number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943 Pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see, I'll read a little bit of our email and then we'll get to the folks who dialed in. Uh, let's see, one of our investors uh, who wrote in Greetings, Gus. I have yet to read or see any mention in media of the 1980-22 caliber killer in connection with the most recent Buffalo Massacre. I can stop here really quick. Uh, the Buffalo News, they did have a report on so-called Memorial Day Monday of this week where they did have a paragraph. It was uh, The report was something to the effect of racism has always been here uh, and talking about the Peyton Gendron Massacre. And they had a paragraph about midway through where they did mention Joseph G. Christopher uh, in the annals of racism in the history of Buffalo. They had a paragraph about his crimes and all that. And I think a link to one of their other stories. But again, I said, hey, the Buffalo News 
Matt Grida. He was just a guest on our program Monday. He wrote for them for 50 years. He spent a lot of time covering this case. They should have been the first. You're right there. You covered all this. They got dozens and probably hundreds of articles on Joseph Christopher. They were right there. You covered this a lot of time. They should have been the first ones to say, oh, my goodness, East Buffalo tops white terrorism. Oh, let's get all of our archive content. That's not what they did. But I did see one report and it was very brief. One paragraph. He continues Monday's broadcast and the discussion of Joey's job as a maintenance worker reminded me of a black male acquaintance who told me some years ago how he worked the night shift at the post office when son of Sam Berkowitz and how he would sit in the break room talking to himself out loud and how their strange behaviors were just tolerated by those in charge. What does it mean to be white? That is crazy. He worked with man. Just, oh, he's just strange. Now that is going to come up in this book repeatedly. Strange, peculiar white people. And what should we do? Are they suspects? Keep that one in mind. Continuing. Uh, chapter five, the news director for TV station WKBW had previously approached Donovan about calling in the services of psychics. This was once a common practice. Psychics were used in the Albert DeSalvo Boston Strangler. Oh, that's uh, O.J. Simpson. Uh, uh, Mr. Bailey was a guest on our program, F. Lee Bailey, back in 2020, literally like a month or so before he passed away. Uh, and John Wayne Gacy cases, for example, I think most police agencies disavow their usage currently. Uh, chapter six, number one, Eris Khan said uh, he called for a boycott against any black supported community groups, churches and businesses that had not sent representatives to the meeting. This seems very misguided and would only be detrimental to other victims. If non-white victims had a code and engaged in only the most constructive activities, maybe there would not be a need to discuss so-called boycotts. Number two, uh, the, organizer, the organizers had four proposals. First, intensive investigation into the Ku Klux Klan neo-Nazi groups, Buffalo area. Second proposal called for the establishment of a People's Commission on Violence Against Black Persons. Third, a task force made up of African-American police officers that would, according to BUILD, state of Affairs Committee Vice President Ernestine Robinson go into action when black citizens came under attack by forces that continued to elude the law. Fourth proposal was to establish funding of anti-crime programs that had formerly been funded by the U.S. Law Enforcement Assistance Administration but had since been discontinued in Buffalo. Forty years later, these proposals seem very similar to the suggestions of non-white victims in 2022. Oh, that's so sad. With the same ineffective result. Oh, that's like a double whammy. The same ineffective. Oh, now I think again, a massive part of this is if more of us were aware all of this happened before then whoa well, what did they do last time clearly that didn't work so we don't want to just keep doing the same thing and again 
What is it they say? Those who do not learn from history. What did they not learn? Even rewind to that question. What does it mean to be white? Two other quick things I'll say and then we'll nab our callers. One, now I do want to make sure that we put this time period in context so that it, hey, if we make an assessment about, you know, responses or should more people know about this, all of that, again, white people most to blame. But I do think it's important just for really context, the time period that we're talking, this, all of this began September 1980. If you grabbed I know we have parents and what have you or younger people. If you yourself are like 20 years old or what have you, or if you have offspring and they're 16, whatever in that age or younger, if you transport them back to 1980, that is like total caveman. I mean, now metaphor, but I mean, 40 years would seem like it's not that long, but I mean, it's a long time in terms of what has developed where things have, have gotten to in 40 years with technology and what have you. So September 1980, no internet, no cell phones, no computer, no Netflix. In fact, I think you would have maybe like no Fox as a television station. You'd have probably like 10 channels on television, probably still have a lot of black and white televisions at this time, late 70s, early 80s. That would be my gander. Maybe a lot of households with still probably one television in the household. Television went off at this time, like 11, 12, somewhere in there. It would just go off. That would be all the TV watching for the day. And next day, uh, ISIS papers did not exist. Neely Fuller Jr.'s code book did not exist or the word God, obviously. Urugu did not like lots of things like total K. In fact, CNN as a network had been in existence three months by the time of these killings. So just for full context, thinking of now what was happening in this era and blah, 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 and all the rest of it, like CNN had been around for exactly three months they started in June 1980 these killings September 1980 caveman times now last thing then we'll get to our callers for our book club really for counter racism purposes in general we should all look to be logical in how we participate in conversations make them as constructive as possible the book club we are focused the price of admission for the book club is I have been reading and or paying attention to the audio. If you have not been paying attention and or reading the book, you are just listening. It is great to hear from folks. Never enjoy being here by myself. I love the man in the high castle. But we're supposed to be focused, right? Book club, I think it's correct, logical. If you're going to participate in a book club, you should be paying attention so that you can participate in a constructive manner. It should never happen where someone dials in and the first thing they say is, I haven't listened to the book. That means you're just listening. 
this is not the time for just random commentary or what have you. We're trying to have focused discussion on the text we just listened to. If you didn't listen, weren't paying attention, got distracted, whatever it is, no problem. We will catch you another time. Just listen. But we're trying to make sure we don't waste time and have serious, focused discussion. Much obliged. So folks who listened to the text, the number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, Folks who dialed in with a hand up, proceed. Can I be heard? Bay Area mom. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for taking my call. Greetings to everyone participating in the program. So, I have been paying attention to the book. I'm so excited. Sometimes I get lost on the space coaster. So, what I did, um, what I was thinking about, uh, particularly the, uh, the, the one, the murder with the gentleman, um, I guess it was kind of like a, uh, maybe a, what would you call him, a hustler? Um, he had a few jobs um, after his, because uh, he was in the military, he had, like, pensions and stuff from different jobs, and then he just did a, a odd and end things just to make sure the money flowed. They had said he was um, real witty once they, you know, got in contact with somebody that knew him. They would always say he was real um, witty. Uh, he knew he was very street smart, rather, and, you know, he wouldn't let anybody con him or uh, dupe him. But we're off guard when it comes to white people. So I think when we're street smart and so forth, it's when we're dealing with people that aren't white, but when they're white, we don't look at them as if they'll do anything to us or if they're up to anything. We're only looking for that um, for, from that kind of behavior. We're only looking for that kind of behavior from us or maybe others, but particularly us. So that's what I want to um, chime in. I'll uh, pop in again uh, later, and thank you. Much obliged Bay Area mom, Parlor Edwards, talking about how street smart he was. Um, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, heard both of you. Let's see. We'll nab Henry in Chicago. I think I saw him on the line first. All right. Thank you. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings to all the callers and listeners. Uh, in the previous uh, chapter, I, I was I saw this uh, I saw where they were talking about how the Buffalo Police uh, it said while they were eager to hear from the potential witnesses, they hoped to discourage the obviously pointless leads on guys who had just happened to have blonde hair and might be a bit off centered. The police had enough to contend with just dealing with the folks who called in to report their grumpy neighbors, former spouses, and weird co-workers, all which had been checked out just in case. Now, I thought about that and I said, if it was in reverse where it was a black guy killing white people, 
they would go straight into the black neighborhoods and round up every nigger in sight that was a black male and, and, and incarcerate them and, and, and vet them out. So it's no surprise that these cops didn't want to, you know, just go, you know, just uh, go with uh, pointless leads because obviously, you know, every black man fits the description of some crime that they committed. Uh, I would even venture to say that I was even picked up as a potential person who robbed a liquor store uh, years ago. So, um, but yeah, so, you know, it's no surprise that cops don't want to round up a whole bunch of white people. Uh, you also, you know, you often see they're very uh, sensitive to that, uh, arresting, arresting their own people. Um, Reverend Charlie Fisher. Oh, well, uh, in that, uh, meeting with the, uh, with the, uh, the black residents of Buffalo and how they were kind of, you know, telling the cops that they weren't doing their jobs. Uh, one of the, uh, one of the, probably the, uh, closest things that, uh, I would say they were, uh, being less confused on white supremacy because, you know, it took a, you know, it took a, a, a white serial killer to kill black men to realize that the cops really don't care about, you know, protecting black people in the Buffalo neighborhood. But it seems like the author kind of made them look like they were conspiracy theorists. You know, uh, this one uh, thing that says Reverend Charlie H. Fisher, executive director of Bill, referred to the murders as part of an international conspiracy. Uh, I guess for me, killing black men is not a conspiracy. Uh, for me, killing black men is a plan. So uh, that's just my opinion on that. And then earlier, uh, before you started the recording, uh, you know, you were talking about Death Wish, and I think you played some uh, <laughs> clips on it. And it's interesting, uh, the, the most recent Death Wish movie that you had played was in Chicago, and I know Chicago has been like the target of, you know, when people want to talk about black on black violence. Uh, actually, it was recently mentioned with uh, Governor Greg Abbott in Texas when he was talking about the the uh, school shooting. And so uh, Chicago, for some reason, in the last couple of years, have always been the center of black on black violence, even though Chicago only has like 800,000 black people <laughs> in the city. So. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. And, um, one last thing too, um, <clears throat> before death, Wish, there was dirty Harry, you know, white man killing, I think he was killing some black folks in that movie too. And I think that came out like three years before death, Wish. so, but that's all I have. I'll mute my line. Much obliged Henry in Chicago, suspected malt liquor thief. Uh, let's see, 0526 in California. Greetings, Gus. Greetings, callers. Um, Joey, the, the killer, he cut out the heart of a black male. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> hearing um, those actions, I, I go into the, the thinking of, of a person that does that. And maybe that's why um, Neely Fuller says that there's um, non-white people, white people, and um, 
white supremacists and that they're hiding and playing sight because um, that behavior of the white supremacist joy of um, rip, cutting out the heart of a person, that, that seems very um, alien, very, very, very Yurugu. And um, also the, the manner in which he is now eliminating black males seems also very um, sexual. I suspect when he cut out the heart of the black male, he was on top of him. And from the hearing the injuries to, um, I may have heard the in, in injuries um, wrong, but it sounded like he was um, also uh, has bruises on his, on his butt or something like that. So this attack and even the act of um, stabbing, poking, that I suspect also um, sexual violence when it's coming from a um, white supremacist. In this case, this individual, I think he should be right up there with um, Jeffrey Dahmer. We should we should all know this person's name and what he was up to and what he was doing on this day to day and how he kept getting in trouble and people just let it slide and how um, it seems like this book is giving us insight in how um, the Yurugu, the white supremacists, they seem to be um, working subconsciously and directly or some way by um, not being able to provide constructive information to lead to this um, white supremacist being captured sooner. It's like, oh, they keep forgetting stuff or leaving out stuff or not noticing that it's a white person who's very suspicious. And I'll meet my line. Much obliged, our caller in California. Uh, let's see, other folks who dialed in uh, that we've not heard from yet, feel free. May I be heard? I'll call her 2262. Yes, sir. Thank you, Gus, for taking my call. <clears throat> uh, this text is pretty interesting. I mean, uh, I want to point out that um, the uh, Edward or Parlor Edward, they it was said here on page seventy-seven that um, the cabin and body had been found on state throughway property in the town of Amherst, and I looked up what a throughway is because I'm here in LA. I, I don't know what a throughway is. Um, <clears throat> it is a system of controlled access highways, and um, this throughway system also plays a vital role in New York State economy. I mean, it controls 18, uh, 115 bridges, 118 interchanges, and 27 service areas connected New York, principal cities, rural areas, and tourist destinations. Uh, with that, I don't see how it's possible to, to, for them not to know um, more about what, is, what has transpired there as far as this murder of uh, the victim. Um, uh, the next part I want to point out, and um, same page, page 77, uh, this is the... Um, uh, the downloadable um, text. Uh, in total, there was seven teeth missing, which he compared to six tooth fragments recovered in the parking lot. I don't know. I just suspect one of the um, officers may have kept that um, tooth. This is more of a, in, in my opinion, this is uh, white people practicing racism, uh, keeping parts of uh, uh, victims as trophies and whatnot. Um, uh, the uh, part, uh, I guess, Leo Donovan and two of his homicide detectives 
attended the autopsy despite the vast dissimilarity between the murder and the shootings. There were still similarity or at least pseudo similarities of the victims. Um, are they white or non-white? I mean, I don't even know what you're trying to say there. Um, the part about, I guess, Thomas Rowan, um, this person, this, uh, I guess, uh, person has been, um, I guess, went to a lot of great schools, uh, went to Santa Barbara, California for his degree, and he became a, uh, what's the name, the chief, chief, a uh, commanding officer of the Department of Science and Investigation Unit, only uh, two years of, after college. Uh, to me, um, if this person's classified as white, uh, that just sounds like he's been given a position because what makes me also think that is that um, it was he was saying that he had examining evidence. This is on page 79. Tom, Tom Rowan returned to his lab where he spent a long night, the first of many, as it turned out, examining evidence, listening for the story it would tell him. I don't know. To me, I would compare that to the um, psychics and stuff like that. I mean, you can either... It, I don't think the killers... Well, that's another thing I want to point out, but I don't think the killers are that efficient for, for police to... Um, for, the, for them to uh, evade police this long. And um, moving further down to... Yes, page 80, um, in the middle of the page... One cabbie who had been parked behind him alongside the Greyhound bus terminal in downtown Buffalo recalled that Parler got a fare at 9.15 p.m. There may have been one or two passengers, possibly white, but all he could remember of for sure was a tan suitcase. Okay. So, uh, to me, considering all the damage that um, uh, was reported about Parler being beaten, kicked, and and bludgeon and stuff like that. To me, I would think there was multiple assailants. Um, going back to what uh, some people have uh, said, this was not just maybe one person engaged in this. But with that, thank you for taking my call, and I'm mute my line. Hmm. How interesting. We can ponder that as we go as well. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in uh if you have commentary to share nepotism charge again much obliged 2262 other folks with a hand up proceed greetings everyone retired firefighter in florida yes uh the more that i listen to uh this book reading uh it becomes clearer and clearer to me on why this uh, series of incidents uh, were not uh, included with the uh, recent one because it, it is I, I don't want to make a comparison between the two between uh, the recent Buffalo and, and the past but uh, uh, this this terrorist was very calculating and something that took maybe, I guess, under maybe three minutes or so in the recent situation. And uh, this person just kind of like took his time on on uh, uh, practicing this type of savagery, uh, you know, is uh, something that would, would perhaps make 
non-white black people are a little bit more cautious around white people, especially white people who are strangers, uh, uh, perhaps. I, I can't say for sure. Uh, because one of, as one of the callers stated, uh, that is a, I would say that's a weakness of non-white people who are racially classified as black, especially that we, uh, <clears throat> we are not, we do not have a healthy level of suspiciousness with white people in general. And I'm not just talking about little children. I'm talking about you know, uh, adult quote unquote cab drivers, uh, age, uh, and, uh, he was quite calculating and I think he had a purpose in mind for being so calculating. Uh, and that's to, to, uh, uh, illustrate terror by, by in the way that he, went about doing things because I've been on, I've been on, you know, murders and whatnot, especially stabbings. And I can relate to what the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, person who was reciting the, the book about the level of energy that you have to exert to be able to do some of the things that we're reading about right now to another person. And, uh, and then on top of it, you know, to go about the means of not running off somewhere, but taking your time and cutting their heart out. You know, that, that, uh, that's something, that's something that, uh, uh, is synonymous directly with, uh, warfare, which racism white supremacy is. Uh, that's kind of like what I was going about the means to ask that, that last guest about that he didn't want to talk about, I guess. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, quite interesting as far as what I'm listening to. Thank you. Much obliged retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, let's see other folks that we missed totally. Can I be heard? Miss C maybe non Clemson grad as well in South Carolina. Yes, ma'am. Hi, Gus. Hello, Cows listeners. Um, first, I would like to say that they keep mentioning um, the killer's blue vehicle. Um, witnesses saw the blue vehicle, and I just feel like for for them not to be able to move forward with the investigation on something that would stand out so much, um, especially in the 80s, um, I, I would think that blue vehicles would be very rare, and they're still rare today. It's very unusual to see somebody with a blue vehicle, but for them um, not to be able to move forward with the investigation based on what witnesses described as a blue vehicle, I just find very interesting. But um, I wanted to comment on Parler Edwards. Um, The author continuously mentions that he was a man of habit and he didn't have to work. The author continues to mention um, that he was like a double retired person. He was in the army, retired from the army. Um, he also, shoot, uh, he also had another job um, that he retired from and his business as a taxi cab driver who owned his own vehicle, that was just excess. And so at 71 years old, black male in Buffalo, it's, it to me, um, 
is like cautionary. Like if you don't have to work, you know, you don't need to work, just stay home or, or if you wanted to do um, cab pickups, do that during, during the daytime when it's a little bit more safe. Um, but again, the author continues to mention um, that uh, Parlor Edwards is receiving multiple checks and he carries around a lot of money and he's very financially savvy. Um, and again, he doesn't have to work. But the fact that he is a man of habit, very disciplined, he was, um, he didn't drink. Um, people considered him to be very reliable, dependable, punctual for him not to show up for um, his special, special pickup of his friend at the um, train station was very unusual. So I feel like because they continue to mention that he was a man of habit, um, the killer likely was, um, you know, looking, looking at him, um, observing him from a distance for maybe a few days before he actually struck. So if you are somebody who does um, do things very uh, routinely, you go the same way home or you have the same routine when you wake up to when you go to bed, maybe change it up. And with that, I'll end my contributions. Much obliged, Miss C. Switch it up, indeed. Uh, let's see. Anybody that we missed totally? Anybody we missed totally? May I be heard? <clears throat> Dread138. Yes, sir. Yes, I'm, I'm pleased to um, some of my notes I took. Um, the first thing that struck me is, like I said, the um, escalation becoming particularly gruesome. And then I think everybody's been echoing it. it seems that the blacks in the area have started moving towards a suspicion of whites where they're starting to confront them. And then it seems that most most of the races wanted to deflect away from that. Um, I found it fascinating, the style of the writing becoming more procedural, becoming very in, reminiscent of an instruction. And then the psychics really struck me as well, like how serious were law enforcement in solving these names and then I finally just thought about the, the pipe that was used to bludgeon Mr. Edwards. Was it the one same one that was in the cab? And could he have done something to secure it so it wasn't available to his assailant? I'll leave my line. Much obliged, Dread138. Um, let's see. I was going to get my notes but given some of the commentary that you all shared uh, and again Buffalo Challenger it's now community the Challenger community news uh, they were so helpful and one of the victims last month Topps grocery store Catherine Massey she wrote for the Buffalo Challenger and the Buffalo Criterion different newspaper out there but uh, they were so helpful, even in the midst of everything. And the community challenger news, also known as the challenger, their office is located on Jefferson Avenue. That is the exact same street where the tops Buffalo grocery store was attacked. Peyton Gendron, exact same street. They said it's been so crazy, but they still managed to send me uh, some of their archived content about all of this. So I'm reading 
This chapter is the early, like the first two and a half weeks of October 1980. So I'm trying to stay in line with all of the material that I've gathered so that I can be right in sync with where we are. So this is from the Buffalo Challenger, October 2nd, 1980. Uh, the title is Wanted, Killer of Black Men Still at Large in City, A Community Unable to Protect Itself is Worthy, is Unworthy of Existence. There's that word again, community. Uh, let me see. Make this. There we go. Uh, they call him the 22 caliber killer and have already declared him crazy. Psychiatrists and psychologists agree that this alleged loner is filled with hatred for black people and that he will probably strike again. This was before the heart murders had happened. To his credit are the deaths of four innocent black men. Glenn Dunn, 14 years old of Forgone Street was the first victim of these racist, senseless attacks as he sat in a car in a parking lot on Genesee Street. Within 36 hours, Glenn's death was followed by the murder of Emmanuel Thomas, 32, who was gunned down at the intersection of East Ferry and Zinner Streets. 43-year-old Joe Lewis McCoy of Niagara Falls and 32-year-old Harold Green of LaSalle Avenue, each one was shot in the head at point-blank range with the same weapon, a 22 caliber automatic pistol. Yet a police slowdown and reluctance of officials to solicit and to date accept outside aid has created a tense and uncomfortable situation in this city. There have been hundreds of tips received by the police. A composite sketch of the killer, they had that in the article, has been drawn up from eyewitness accounts, but not one person has been questioned. Not one arrest has been made. We find this highly unusual. If a black man going around killing white men in cold blood every other brother on the street would find himself downtown for questioning didn't someone just say that echo and another unusual suspect of this investigation aspect sorry of this investigation is why police want to make this a man of loner when eyewitness to the e ferry street killing saw the assailant escape in a waiting blue car the same car that oh now see we got this last week so everybody has to have a good memory right the same car that uh some say was involved in the hideous sick incident at glenn dunn's funeral two vehicles carrying white men invaded the funeral last week shouting racial epithets as they drove by the crowded sidewalk outside saint paul's missionary baptist church on kingsley street they wore red paint to look like blood with bullet holes painted on their bodies. A brown pickup truck along with the blue compact car carried a mannequin's head mounted on its hood. The whole thing reeks of clanism, Nazism or both. In fact, two of the killings occurred in known clan territory in the Bailey section of the city. But there have been no arrests, no questioning or no mentioning of the hate group's possible involvement. We don't buy the loner line, the crazy line either. That is the title of this book is absolute madness. Man, I just because I read Joey 22. Now I know what that means. Prescient this article. They were the Buffalo Challenger. Challenger Community News. All the Dr. Welsing even talked to us on the cows. He did a whole program 2012, 10 years ago, April. That word crazy. If white supremacy racism is what we, we mean to say, if that's what we're talking about, say that as opposed to, oh, he was crazy. 
I digress. Let's see. Clan territory. We don't buy the crazy line either. That killer or killers is filled with hatred for black people does not make him unusual. He is merely an extension of the evil that has penetrated the very core of this society. Uh, it goes on. They talk about some of the black people forming uh, gun clubs and uh, that sort of thing. Lots of reports on that. And even some of the suggestions that we heard uh, uh, talked about in terms of getting the black policemen to go out and address some of these issues, all of that. I'll stop there and uh, get some of my notes. But that was October 1980, Buffalo Challenger, black newspaper in the Buffalo area. Let's see my notes from this section and then we'll get to the second audio. May even have time to double check, make sure we didn't, other folks don't have commentary as well. Ooh, chapter five, let's see. Um, okay. Uh, a white man complained to police that four young black men had pointed handguns at his car at the intersection of W. Delavan and Delaware and accused him of being the 22 caliber killer. According to the complainant, the men held him at gunpoint for several minutes before speeding off. Lots of reports of this sort of activity, even if it was not like directly harassing or confronting white people, but lots of suspicion. They even have articles. I have to see where they match up in the timeline to share them as we go, but they have articles of like black uh, elected officials like who have great jobs and all that, you know, in context saying, Hey, I started carrying a gun in the midst of all this. I think they had one black person he was talking about. He was walking down the street. This was before Christopher was, it took almost a year before he was caught. You know, it's like eight months. Uh, he was walking down the street and he said, this white guy, he got real close up on him. And he said, he started looking at him like he was ready to <laughs> work on him. And he said, the white guy took off running in the other direction. Like it's tons of stories like this from this time period in Buffalo. Like, autumn of 1980 all the way up through springtime uh let's see leo donovan uh he said had pointedly expressed his resentment of the criticism leveled at police and the allegation that the investigation had gotten off to a sluggish start i mean really uh i we're only in october so we haven't even gotten to all the black males who get their heart stolen from them killed and carved out and all of that uh People who were with us for the program Monday, Matt Greider, he said, if Joseph Christopher had not been talking down in Georgia, they would not have caught him. Now, we will have to keep that in mind as we proceed, but he was pretty unequivocal about that. And I haven't seen anything that has led me to believe, oh, yeah, we got it. We, we know what's going on. Like We're going to catch this guy. Hmm. Let's see. They have a secret meeting to keep out the press enforcement officers to coordinate their efforts. And they say, of course, the reporters had their sources anyway, one of whom said that the meeting had consisted mostly of drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes and shooting the bull. That is one, two, three Wellsing moments. Didn't Dr. Wellsing talk about all three of those ISIS paper, the coffee drinking compensation for being melanin deficient smoking cigarettes all that uh phallic genital fixation uh and then the i mean doesn't it, the uh the bull killing and all the running of the bulls and they castrate the bull 
one, two, three. And this is we're being productive, taking this serious black citizens being killed. Eh, you got another cup of coffee? Got another fag? Shooting the bull. Next, metaphors. Next. Uh, to that end, on the basis of tips and profiles of persons with known racist inclinations, detectives had questioned 12 potential suspects on Friday. None had panned out. Now, even that racist inclinations, what does that mean? <laughs> like, how, how, how much of a racist inclination do you have to have in a system of white supremacy to be called in for a case like this? Let's see. The whole psychic and everything, uh, you have to put a pin uh, in this one about the psychics. Um, You have to put a pin in this one. I was so excited. Uh, They have a Tony people that know Tony Brown, right? Tony Brown's journal. He did a whole segment. Is there a conspiracy against black people? January 1981. That's the only reason we didn't hear right now. I was able to get this on one of my uh, library excavations this past weekend, but it's January 1981. We're only at October 1980, so I have to sit on this probably for a couple of weeks until we get to that part of the book. But they have a whole 30-minute conversation just about Buffalo. Is this a part of a national conspiracy? They have a flipping psychic on the program. She is classified as black, but they have a psychic on the program and she gives her thoughts about what's happening in this case. Like (sighs) caveman time, 1980. I don't know how people out there feel about psychics and I really don't care. Uh, Let's see. Next. The psychic and the astrologer had been eager to return to Chicago. There's a criminal out there who is a murderer. If he knows we're on his trail, we can be knocked off too. the psychic explained. They asked the media not to use their names until they were out of town. Uh, The profile was this killer was attacking black males. So unless you're a black male, it would seem like you're safe. Uh, Let's see chapter 6 and now we're October 8th through the 19th of 1980 uh, Parlor Edwards diabetic we keep getting that Essie May we heard that all through there black people having all these health problems uh, and what have you he's a veteran so he should at least have spectacular uh, medical insurance and benefits and all that good stuff um, but he did say no alcohol strict diet that's how he could hey Parlor Edwards need more of that didn't say he had 50,000 bottles of medication falling out of his cab and all these insulin needles and everything not no disrespect to people who need that but I mean hey food is your medicine let's see if we can put those Cheetos and high fructose corn syrup down and all that bad food that they got at the tops in East Buffalo put all that down so that we don't end up being diabetic in the first place uh, let's see fit strong person uh, retired from the factory I think the author noted that how he double retiree shouldn't you know should hey lauded you know veteran this guy's out here working he's not on the dole he just wants to be active and still be a part of the community and giving his friends ride and stuff like wow what an upstanding set bravo bravo this, this is the same thing right Colin Kaepernick you get up you got people like Parler Edwards sat out here and gave so much sacrifice so much of themselves you're out here being no count ungrateful negro 
should be doubly on it about getting this one solved, right? Out here killing veterans. Come on. Let's see. So they go out and make this gruesome discovery. Don't even believe what it is at the time. When I heard all the details about the teeth, like two different crime scenes and finding the teeth uh, reminded me of Kobe Bryant. Uh, and how you got this big to do and lawsuits and everything about them white officers at the scene and taking photos and sharing them at the bar and oh look there's he burned up and everything like that and then just thinking about white culture in total what it means to be white we just had we were talking about the lynching of Zachariah Walker right that's the book that we just talked about in Pennsylvania not in the south Florida South Carolina and although there are lots of South Carolina but Zachariah Walker was not lynched in South Carolina that was Willie Earl Zachariah Walker was in Pennsylvania where they chopped him up and oh let me get these teeth and oh let me get his finger said they had white children walking around with his finger Zachary uh, Zachariah Walker's finger in his pocket weeks that is white culture extra all of it I asked Matt Greider on Monday I said man you got a white man a racist attacking black people killing black males children even carving their heart out isn't that a part the whole Emmett Till castration carving up of black bodies isn't that a part of the long history of, of white culture said, Ooh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know I don't know all of this I think too enforcement officers might ooh let me grab one of these teeth here look at that hmm, niggas teeth let me take that home hmm. Kobe Bryant like I said 2022 same thing there was a difference in the book and the audio they said uh, at the Cayuga Road overpass of the Interstate 90 throughway in the town of Amherst, some two miles northwest, and the audio it said southwest. Just for accuracy, strive for accuracy, say that all the time. Uh, let's see. It appeared the taxi had been driven off the access road into an area of heavy brush. This is important. Uh, like, this is when you have to tab it and way down the road because it takes a long time for them to catch this white guy. Uh, Apparently, Joseph G. Christopher revealed details about this car being covered. This information was not publicly released at that time. And he revealed information about the car being covered up. And he got these branches and tried to camouflage it somewhat where they said, oh, wow, he's got details that, you know, he shouldn't have unless he, you know, did this, knew somebody who did this. How did he get this information? Uh, let's see. in response this is so they go to have a talk with the black people uh, the 22 caliber killings were part of a plot to eliminate black people and attendee named Eric. even pause right there because we read this it has been a plot for 400 years and the media have perpetuated the plot now again the ISIS papers didn't exist Mr. Fuller's work didn't exist the language that you still hear people right now 2022 who sound like this and how they talk about the problem and why Peyton Gendron and these incidents keep happening and are going to keep happening. This is what it means to be white. This is white culture. All of it. Now, also, I think you got a white author writing this here because, hey, a black person saying this at this time, 
Joseph Paul Franklin has also not been caught at this time. All these killings that she talked about quickly there of these black guys that was happening in Salt Lake City and Ohio and other places. So he hasn't been apprehended. The Atlanta child murder, so-called, has been happening for over a year. No one apprehended. Why would they sound like this? In addition to everything else, you know, oh, oh, since she didn't do it, I'm gonna go ahead and read it now. Uh, Let me see. I was trying to wait to see if she's going to mention this, but this is so many reports. This is. Oh, yeah. I posted this one online so you can go look it up yourself if you're interested. Uh, This is from the Toronto Star, October 19. Right. So a little bit later, 1980 racial killings appall a rough, tough town. Now they have the sketch of the killer at that time hunted. Uh, I'm just giving you the quickie. Why would a black person get up and say, oh, it's a conspiracy. We heard about the funeral, right? Blue car and they go and attack, terrorize everybody at the funeral. Got that? Okay. So this is from the Toronto Star. They write ugly, ugly, shaming time. Along with the Niagara frontier, one, the Bethlehem street plant, a worker opened his locker and stared at a beef heart someone had stuck there. Two, a cross was burned in the depths of the black ghetto, the Negro area. And they have a picture of the cross burning. Number three, a Toronto man lost in the black coast side, black east side, was dragged from his car and beaten up. Rocks and bottles have been thrown at white drivers, told you. Four, there are giggly jokes like the cops know who the murderer is. He's a poker player. He's already got four spades and two hearts. <laughs> I told you we haven't got to all the black people who got their cart chopped out. Have to keep leading. Uh, next, this isn't the Buffalo that Toronto knows the city of bargain clothes and bowling of the sabers and the bills, the art galleries and cockeyed television news. This is racist Buffalo. They are not talking about Peyton Gendron. Again, this is October, 1980. Uh, Let's see anything else before we get to next audio. International. That must be like the word conspiracy as opposed to system of white supremacy, racism, conspiracy international conspiracy and again 1980 lot fewer resources um, the boycotting of the black people who didn't support like I, I too didn't understand that I thought they were going to name some white people to boycott or what have you but they didn't do that the police slowdown I also think is important because that also I believe was related to racism white supremacy they apparently were having like so called affirmative action policies and other like really tacky measures to try to counter racism uh, and other labor disputes so there was a so called slowdown we've heard that before right Eric Garner Michael Brown were maybe we work really hard maybe we don't I know if they were killing a bunch of white people and the police decided to have a slowdown yee, somebody is probably going to get fired uh, let's see anything else Mm-mm-mm. oh Richard Long I'll get in the one more and then we'll get to the second audio Richard Long we did get that far uh, 
high profile death of a man named Richard Long at the hands of some off duty police officers. Long was 18 years old. Two police officers were convicted of murder and served sentences of less than three years. I think Long was classified as white. Hmm. Let's see. Anything else? Yeah, that's good. We'll get to second audio segment. Oh, the abrasions on the butt. I did highlight that. I thought, man, with everything that were, if you didn't hear Matt Grider, maybe you don't know, but oh yeah, that for sure. Homoeroticism. Why are you beating him on the buttocks? Whether he's alive at all. White culture, the homoeroticism. That is exactly what Mr. Fuller said. He said, I wouldn't pick Adolf Hitler. He said, I would pick Jeffrey Dahmer epitomize white supremacy racism it's not enough to kill you I gotta thingify you sodomize you carve your heart out chop your penis off and fingers off and keep it in a jar someplace uh, let's see oh yeah this will be my life he says they were talking to one of the enforcement officials he said it's easy to shoot somebody it's more difficult to stab someone when it comes to dismemberment it takes someone who is psychologically on the evil side of the spectrum way on the other side of the bell curve of types of offenders one the bell curve as a book hadn't even been published yet but that's normally what I think of when I hear bell curve dumb niggers but then the dismemberment like no this is white culture what I just said Emmett Till that's what we do that's what we've done and bragged about doing for centuries make a lamp out of Nat Turner and brag about that anywho second audio segment we haven't even gotten to all of the black people who lose their hearts did you hear that racist joke spades and hearts what does it mean to be white, man? What does it mean to be white? Second audio segment, context of white supremacy, Catherine Pelinero, absolute madness. If you didn't get to comment or what have you, oh, I did, so we missed some folks. Just write down, you'll be number one when we get back. Context of white supremacy, audio segment two. The victim had such regular habits that police were quickly able to trace virtually all of his whereabouts during his final hours up until 1.45 a.m., when he had last been seen at the Howard Johnson's restaurant across from the airport, three miles away from where he was supposed to pick up his special fare. Somehow, some way, in that short time span and distance, Parlor Edwards had taken a wrong turn and had met up with a person or persons who were not a part of his regular routine. Or were they? As orderly as Parler's life appeared to be, his taxicab was not. It was loaded with a mishmash of papers and various items. It would take investigators some time to examine and catalog all of it. But one thing that had caught their attention immediately was a stack of betting slips that looked like those used in the numbers game, or numbers racket, the illegal underground lottery. A record check at the Buffalo Police Department showed that Parlor Edwards had been arrested eight times. Five of those arrests were for assault and had occurred between 1932 and 1966. His most recent arrests had been in July 1969. First, for facilitation of gambling, 
and later the same month for promotion of gambling in the first degree and possession of gambling records. Numbers had been around in poor urban neighborhoods almost since the dawn of poor urban neighborhoods. The game predated state lotteries and worked much like them, but with the advantage of higher payouts and no taxes. Betters chose three numbers and wagered small amounts of money. The winning numbers were determined by either a drawing or some agreed-upon combination, like the last three digits of the next day's stock market close or total handle at a racetrack. Numbers games were sometimes called the Italian lottery because they were ultimately under mob control. The people who took the bets and delivered the payoffs were called numbers runners. Even after the advent of state lotteries, numbers rackets were still in operation throughout the country and were very lucrative for the people who ran them. Aileen Carr acknowledged to police that Parler had been arrested for his involvement in gambling in 1969 and said that his wife had been very upset with him over it. As far as Aileen knew, Parler had gotten out of numbers at that time and had not been involved since. He wasn't engaged in any sort of illicit activity, to the best of her knowledge, although Aileen did say that Parler was very tight-lipped about his personal affairs, particularly anything related to his finances. His friend Robert Harley thought that driving a cab was really more of a hobby for Parler. His grown children agreed. They said their father didn't need the money, that the cabbie work just gave him something to do in his retirement. Parler had begun driving a cab following the 1975 death of his wife. Could he also have resumed his role in the numbers racket? If so, he certainly wouldn't be the first man with a sideline he kept secret. On the surface, Parler Edwards seemed much like any other elderly widower. Leading a quiet, uneventful life centered around family and long-standing friendships. His manner of death seemed totally at odds with his lifestyle. But the discoveries in his cab and his past could be significant. Police also learned that Parler always carried three wallets. Only one had been found so far, placed curiously, or perhaps strategically, underneath his dead body. Whoever killed him obviously hadn't been concerned with concealing his identity nor were they interested in taking his jewelry or the cash in his pockets. The large amount of money he reportedly carried with him had so far not been found. Whatever the motive, he had not simply been killed, but overkilled. As Wednesday, October 8th, drew to a close, investigators had no suspects, but they did have some questions that would require further digging. In the meantime, they were guarded about releasing details of Parler's death to the public. A brief newspaper article appeared that day stating that an unidentified black man, thought to be a cab driver, had been found dead in the trunk of a car. Police didn't divulge the manner of the death or the mutilation, but they did say there was no immediate indication of a connection with the twenty-two caliber killings. So the grisly murder of Parlor Edwards did not cause or exacerbate panic. Not at first. Tonawanda is another suburb of Buffalo, located directly north of the city, 
bordered on the east by the Amherst area and on the west by the Niagara River. At 4.29 a.m. on Thursday, October 9th, a Tonawanda police lieutenant on routine patrol noticed what looked like a person lying in the parking lot of a boat launch facility off of River Road at the foot of Sheridan Drive. Lieutenant Leroy Leader stopped his vehicle and got out to take a closer look. Shining his flashlight, he saw a deceased black male lying in a large pool of blood. Leader radioed for assistance. A group of Tonawanda police officers responded immediately and secured the scene. The victim, fully clothed, lay on his back in a slightly raised area of the parking lot among some garbage cans. His shirt was drenched with blood. There were gaping wounds in his throat, a long open wound on the left side of his chest. He had lost a massive amount of blood. The pool surrounding him extended north of the body and created a bloody path almost thirty feet long, at the end of which was found a gold wristwatch with a broken band. Six feet away from the body, in the same direction, there was a six-inch buck knife and, further on, a piece of rope. There were bloody tire impressions on the pavement. The small boat launch facility was located approximately seven miles from downtown Buffalo. The parking lot was bordered on the south by the Tonawanda Water Treatment Plant and on the north by the Erie County Treatment Plant. At the edge of the lot were docks entering directly into the Niagara River. Located within the parking area was a building that housed Walt's Bait Shop. The Huntley Power Plant sat at the river's edge a short distance away on River Road. The area was otherwise isolated, with no homes or businesses nearby. The victim lay in the southeast corner of the lot, approximately fifty feet away from the water treatment plant fence, near some trees, foliage, and five twenty-gallon garbage cans. No wallet or identification was found in his clothing or in the vicinity. The medical examiner was called. Despite the pre-dawn hour, an assistant district attorney also reported to the scene almost immediately. Other officials and other police agencies would soon follow. Tonawanda had now joined the list of municipalities in western New York with a gruesome murder of a black male. Drawings and photographs were made of the scene. It was noted that the boat launch facility was about 11 miles from the site where the body of Parlor Edwards had been discovered only hours before. Both bodies had been found in very close proximity to throughway entrance ramps. The medical examiner made a preliminary examination of the victim before he was taken to the Erie County morgue, where the body was tagged as a John Doe. Tonawanda police, meanwhile, spoke with the owner of Walt's bait shop, who lived on the premises. The man said he had been out for the evening, arriving home about 4.15 a.m., and he hadn't seen or heard anything out of the ordinary. Two employees of the water treatment plant working the graveyard shift said much the same, though both periodically had to go outside to check machines and log readings at the plant and pump station. The only unusual occurrence— had been a car full of giggling teenagers that had raced up to the water's edge at about 11.30 p.m. Tires had squealed, and then the car had backed up and did circles and fishtails near the ramp at the docks before speeding off. At about the same time, however, one of the employees had noticed a white car in the vicinity of the bait shop 
and a station wagon parked toward the barricade fence, facing the Huntley plant. Another unidentified car parked next to this car. He had seen the same three vehicles in the parking lot for the past three nights. At the morgue, a Buffalo police officer took a set of fingerprints of the deceased black male, which were turned over to the evidence unit. A search of the fingerprint file resulted in a positive match to the prints of one Ernest Jones, date of birth 313-1940, of 326 South Park Avenue, Buffalo. Of the seven law enforcement officers present at the autopsy, four had attended the post-mortem of Parlor Edwards the evening before. Chief Leo Donovan, Tom Rowan, Michael Melton, and Raymond Motika of the State Police. They were now joined by Detective John Ludka of Buffalo Homicide, who had accompanied Donovan to the Edwards's crime scenes, and two detectives from the Tonawanda Police. For half the assembled lawmen, and for Associate Chief Medical Examiner Catherine Lloyd, the autopsy was a surreal repeat of the day before. The victim was a smaller man, five feet three, and weighed 143 pounds. His head, neck, and upper limbs were covered with dried blood. His eyes protruded, pupils in mid-dilation. Blood filled his nose and both ears. He had severe injuries to his head and chest. Ernest Jones had five incised wounds. Three of these were major penetrating gashes across his throat and neck that had severed both his right jugular vein and his left carotid artery. A large gaping V-shaped slash measured four and a half inches in length and exposed his lacerated larynx. One of the wounds was so deep it had incised the vertebra. His throat had not just been cut. It was mangled. A great deal of blood surrounded all of the neck wounds. There was a superficial horizontal wound beneath his chin that was one inch long and directly in the midline, as if someone had taunted him with a throat slashing before actually doing the job. The largest incised wound was in his chest. Jagged and open, it was eight inches long with a two-inch wide gape. His sternum had been cut through. The great vessels to the heart had been neatly cut. His heart was gone. As with Parlor Edwards, there was very little blood found in the chest or around the wound, indicating the heart had been removed after death had occurred. There was a stab wound on the lower left side of his neck and another above the massive chest incision. He had also been stabbed twice in the left side of his back and once behind his left ear. There were two blunt trauma injuries on the back of his head, both on the right side, and two peculiar puncture marks in his scalp. The head wounds were penetrating, but not as extreme as those that had been inflicted on Parlor Edwards. Ernest Jones had died as a result of blood loss from the massive mutilation of his throat. Like Edwards, Ernest Jones had several defensive wounds on the backs of the fingers on his right hand. He also had a large amount of undigested food in his stomach. Jewelry and some money, $36 in cash, were found on him. The similarities would not end there. Shortly before 1.30 p.m., Detectives Frank Dubell and Melvin Lobbett were dispatched to the victim's home. They requested that Ernest Jones's wife and 18-year-old son accompany them to the morgue. 
The body had been cleaned and prepared for viewing as well as possible, with the sheet pulled up over the neck. Mrs. Jones was anguished and inconsolable. She sobbed and clung to her husband's body on the gurney until finally some of the officers gently pulled her away. She and Ernest had been married for twenty-two years, she told investigators. They had seven children ranging in age from thirteen to twenty-one. The last time she saw her husband alive was at eight the night before, when he had left for work. Ernest Jones was a cab driver. As with the Parlor Edwards crime scenes, police were searching a wide area in and around the boat launch facility, collecting every stray item, aside from the knife and gold wristwatch that had been recovered within a few feet of the body. They weren't finding anything of significance. According to his wife, Ernest Jones had left home the night before in his taxi. Where was it now? Detectives Al Williams and John Montondo of Buffalo Homicide were sent to interview the owners and employees of Broadway Cab Company. The owner confirmed that Ernest Jones, whose nickname was Shorty, drove cab number 56. Shorty had been driving for him for about six months, he said, and he drove cab number 56 exclusively. Shorty leased the cab from him for $35 per day and took it home with him. Though the taxi was owned by the company, Shorty had it in his possession all the time, and no other cabbies drove it. Cab number 56 was a maroon 1976 Chevrolet with a black vinyl top and Broadway livery decals on both front doors. Williams and Montando immediately put out a pickup and hold for homicide with the vehicle description and plate number. According to the owners, Jones did not call in when working or after trips, but it was customary for him to receive calls from the cab stand. The dispatcher on the 4 p.m. to midnight shift said they had received several calls for Jones last night, which was typical. Shorty Jones had a lot of specials, callers requesting cab number 56 specifically. Williams and Montando also spoke with the dispatcher on the midnight to 8 a.m. shift who said that she too had received a number of calls for cab number 56. She had informed the callers that Jones was not working because his name was not on the running sheet. However, she did put the calls out to him anyway in case he was on the air. Neither of the dispatchers had heard from Jones at all during their shifts, although one thought he might have said hello to her via the radio when she began her shift. Drivers often did that, but she couldn't remember for sure if Shorty had done so the previous night. Al Williams and John Montando were on their way back to headquarters when they heard over the police radio that the cab had been found. At 2.40 p.m., a patrolman from Precinct 5 had responded to a complaint call of an abandoned vehicle on Potomac Avenue, a residential neighborhood on the west side of Buffalo. The officer had discovered the red taxi parked at the curb in front of 96 Potomac in a no-parking zone. Williams radioed back with instructions to keep everyone away from the cab and not to touch it. Two officers from Precinct 5 were on the scene when Detectives Williams and Montando arrived minutes later. Al Williams made a visual inspection of the cab while his partner started canvassing the nearby houses. Potomac Avenue was a one-way street in a working-class, largely Italian neighborhood. 
The location was a block away from Niagara Street and the adjacent throughway that ran parallel to the Niagara River. It was 3.5 miles from where Shorty Jones's body had been found. Potomac had alternate parking, and the cabinman left on the south side of the street, where no parking was allowed on Thursdays. It was the only vehicle parked on that side. All four doors of the cab were shut, but unlocked. On the metal portions of the exterior driver's side of the car, both front and rear, were marks that appeared to be blood. There was blood on both the front driver's side and front passenger side windows. Peering into the cab, William saw blood on the metal part of the shield that separated the front and rear seats. There were spots of blood on a cushion in the driver's seat and on the door handle. Hand and fingerprints were visible on the windows. A set of keys, they looked like car keys, were in the front passenger seat. The meter had registered $9.45. In a repeat of the previous day, police from different agencies converged on quiet Potomac Avenue to investigate a vicious slaying with dual crime scenes. Photos were taken by both the Buffalo and State Police photographers. Chief Leo Donovan ordered that the cab should be towed to the Tonawanda Police Department and touched as little as possible in the process. The tow truck driver hooked it up from the rear to avoid having to go inside the vehicle to release the gear lever from the parked position. Several residents on Potomac had noticed the cab at various times throughout the morning, conspicuous because it was on the no-parking side of the street. Its earliest sighting had been around 5.30 a.m. by a man leaving for work. No one had seen who parked it or when. The complaint call about the abandoned cab had come from an anonymous elderly male. Reporters had been prodding police for information since the discovery of Parlor Edwards's body the day before. Officials who wanted to keep the specific details under wraps knew immediately that with the murder of Shorty Jones, another black cab driver found with his heart cut out, killed just a day later, keeping the press at bay, would be impossible. It wouldn't be advisable either. Faced with the prospect of a savage killer on the loose who specialized in mutilation and dismemberment, no one wanted to be accused of withholding vital information from the public about the danger that lurked. In an uncharacteristic move, Edward Cosgrove had held a press conference at 3 p.m. the day before in the Amherst Town Hall during which he had divulged a number of details about the murdered man found in the trunk of the taxicab. Without giving the victim's name, because the family hadn't yet been notified, Cosgrove said that the victim had been brutally beaten about the head, but had not been shot. The murder did not appear to be linked to the twenty-two caliber killings. He confirmed that the victim had massive injuries to the head and face, that he had been beaten in the Chictawaga parking lot, where police had found bloodstains, teeth, pieces of bone, and human tissue, and that the body, found in the trunk of the cab, had been dumped by the throughway in Amherst. He said there was a deep, long slash to the left breast, but that it appeared the head injuries were the cause of death. He did not mention the removal of the heart. Stressing that the victim had not been shot, 
Cosgrove said that all of the fatal injuries were apparently inflicted by a blunt instrument and that the victim had been dead a relatively short time before the body was discovered. He added that robbery appeared to be the motive. The Amherst and Chictawaga Police Departments would conduct the investigation, he said, with Captain Henry Williams of the State Police coordinating and Buffalo Homicide Chief Leo Donovan assisting. Cosgrove also informed the press that he himself would be the sole spokesman for information relating to the case, and he'd make himself available day or night. According to an article in the October 9th morning edition of the Courier Express, printed before the discovery of the second cabbie murder, Ed Cosgrove spent the first twenty minutes of the press conference conveying details of the crime and investigation, and another twenty minutes criticizing segments of the media, some politicians and other self-posturing individuals, for suggesting that local law enforcement was incapable of handling the twenty-two caliber investigation. I am personally and professionally insulted when some people suggest that our police aren't doing their jobs, Cosgrove stated. A terrible disservice is done to the community when self-posturing, divisive, selfish ideas are tossed around for self-serving purposes. The police don't deserve it, blacks don't deserve it, and whites don't deserve it. Though he declined to mention names, he acknowledged that some of the individuals to whom he was referring were speakers at Tuesday night's Build meeting. He dismissed the suggestion that the murders were connected to the KKK or similar white supremacist groups. Har, 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 har. That's Gus T being funny. I thought that would be a great spot to uh, end at. How would I forget that we left off white supremacist groups? So that's what we'll pick up at uh, for next Thursday. Incidentally, any newspaper heart that you any heart any newspaper report uh that you hear mentioned uh in this book, Courier Express, Buffalo News, any of them, uh they are available. Uh you can get all of these articles and go read them in their entirety for yourself to see if she left out any pertinent details or anything else, but feel free to go online. I've posted tons of them. Uh, they're very easy to get. Most of them, you probably wouldn't even have to go to the library uh, to access unless you really are Jones and to get like the physical, you know, what the actual paper. And even with a lot of those, you don't even have to go to the library. You could do it on your phone or, you know, from your computer and get all the reports. Anywho, so we'll pick up in chapter six next week. More black male victims to come. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If we missed you the first time around, you'll be first up this time. So get ready. Uh, email untiljustice at gmail.com. We'll read your commentary as well hopefully people you know we're only three sessions in people will grasp now why has Gus been saying that this is mandatory especially since it seems we have lots and lots of people who don't know anything about all of this and it's not even being mentioned right now with domestic terrorism charges in Buffalo 
little to no mention of any of this. That's not an accident. That is white culture, deliberate white supremacy racism. So we just stay confused. We being black people, non-white people, just stay confused. Uh, so people we did not hear from at all first time around uh, our caller in Georgia and Irie, uh, you all should be with us. Georgia connection to this story for sure. Keep listening. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, thank you for taking my call. Hopefully everyone's having the best evening they can have. Um, the only, I guess the only thing I want to mention, which is typical, but you know, it's important to point this out, even though it makes it diff- it may make it difficult to listen or to read these type of books. Is the the um the do I don't know how to say the do more or the depiction of the victims. You know, in the first reading, I think you talked about Mr. Williams, how he was disciplined, this, that, and the other. And then the second part, oh, he was a, he could have been a numbers runner and this, that. None of that had anything to do with him being killed. And it's just consistent process that white people do. They just look for something wrong to go, well, maybe he deserved to be killed. I mean, he didn't. It's like, well, these things happen. So may, I guess to put into white, other white people's mind that maybe this person deserved to be killed. Even with, um, I have to go back and finish listening to the, um, presentation on Monday when he talked about the teenager who got killed. Oh, he had stolen the car and said the other was there a trial? Was I mean, you know, he wasn't killed because of that. And you know that, so why bring that up? But that's all I want to mention and how that is consistent. Thank you. Worthless criminal Negroes who maybe deserved what they got common thing uh irie in louisiana uh did you have commentary salutations yes um i'm catching up listening to the archives and um just glad i had a chance to listen live i wanted to add um two things well one really fresh off the end of the caller in georgia uh just coming off of that, I think the reason why they make sure to add this unnecessary information about victims of racism um, who are murdered by racists is kind of, it's not just to demean the person in death and disqualify them from their lives, but I think it's also just a demonstration um that they can find out whatever they want to find out about non-white people down to very, very hidden details, depending on how dedicated they are to find out. Because if the guy was a numbers runner, I'm sure he did it uh, subtly or, you know, it wasn't something, that's not something most people was like, hey, I'm a numbers runner, you know. So it's them demonstrating that they can, how nosy they are, number one, um, and two, hey, we can find out information about whoever, but it will not work the same for, for non-white people. It takes a, a lot <laughs> a lot of work to get information from white people, even in just 
regular conversations, like things that you wouldn't think they would have a problem talking about. The second thing is what I was listening to or what I was hearing. So the people that are seeing the guy, well, I guess I have three things. So the people that are seeing the guy, a lot of them are, uh, they, they're demonstrating a programming to not see a white person as uh, a murderer or a criminal for them to be like, oh, I don't know anymore. I don't know if it was a white person or, you know, it's, it's something to, it, it speaks a lot to the programming that we receive through propaganda, like television and stuff, to always see white people as good people. And even when they're killing people, which is um, what's brought up during your discussion with the, the author about Death Wish, like the jokes about being a murderer, a, vigil, a vigilante, you know, somehow he's still okay. He's still an okay person. So I think that for the victims of racism that I heard about that didn't know if it was a white guy or not, I think that's part of that process. And then for the white people, you know, they just gone into denial, you know, that, that whole thing. And then uh, the last thing, I find it interesting that everybody's describing the guy as, as a duddy person. He's, he's a, he was called a dope, I believe, in the interview you did. Um, the guy said he was a dope. He's, people say he looks slow, but yet, the police, I remember, I think I remember hearing, they're like, oh, he's just so, like, he's evasive, right? We can't catch him. We can't figure it out. We, we, he's got a stump. Okay, either this one guy really going to be smarter than a whole police department, or are y'all really looking for him, or or what? You know what I'm saying? But either, either, either what's the saying? Either you're dumb or you're in on it. So who's really, who's really, I don't know. I, I don't know how to put it. I don't want to use a metaphor, but I find it interesting that he's somewhat delayed, but yet, you know, he's getting, getting away with all, all this uh, terrorism so far in the book. Thank you. Sorry if I was worried. Much obliged, uh, Irie in Louisiana. Keep that in mind as we proceed as well. Dopey white person. Uh, all of the other folks uh, that we heard first time around, uh, Bay Area mom, retired firefighter, caller in California, 2262, Henry in Chicago, all should be with us. If you all have commentary, proceed. Uh, yes, ma'am, we can hear you. Okay, thank you. So I, I thought back uh, to um, earlier when you stated um, what could have been going on in the 80s and you said you you weren't available. I was. I was in 1980. Um, I, I don't know. My mom was very particular about uh, me. Uh, I couldn't do anything because of everything that was going on outside. And... Um, she was always a thinker, and um, I, I, I'm going to have to inquire because she's not alive now, but I'm going to ask how they uh, dealt with 
that time and what they remember about the the late uh you know towards the end of um nineteen um eighty and as uh the clip was reading the uh oh dear when when he had cut when he was stabbing um the guy up and cutting his, uh neatly cutting his heart out, but he did it after um I guess it was already dead first. Uh, because they know stuff. They know how to do stuff and make it uh, not as messy. I I couldn't take it. It it, it hurt my feelings to listen to it. Um, and and um, I, I was only a kid in in um, in the eighties. Uh, so I guess the adults would have more information. But I don't remember hearing anything about anything. And in those times, we were so distracted. Just like we are now, we were distracted with other things, um, so we we didn't really focus on on that. We were just exiting the seventies. Uh, we had all these different eras, like we did soul trains all through the seventies, and then by the eighties, we were in the kind of the disco era, and it's just all the other distractions that they have out for us. So we're not even thinking about that. I know as a kid, I'm not thinking about anybody doing anything to me or uh, abducting me. Um, so I just wanted to uh, share that. Uh, I, well, Ronald Reagan was in office. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I'll mute my line. Technically, not yet. He didn't win the election until November. So Jimmy Carter was in office. Just say that because Jimmy Carter did comment on these murders as president of the United States. Yes. And even that we don't remember. That is amazing. Uh, other folks commentary to share. You said, you said Carter, uh, uh, spoke on the murders. Yes. We haven't got that far yet, but yes, yes, he did. Hmm. Hmm. Well, one thing that I do remember about the news, uh, it was not as, it didn't go as vast, even with murders, it didn't go as vast as it, it is today. Uh, like something like what we're reading, of course, would would go national, perhaps international, whereas it it didn't happen as much back during that time. I put it that way. Being that you say the president of the United States was talking about it, it must have went national to a certain extent. But I, I doubt if it 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 would have been as as huge as the news is today with things of that nature. Uh, yeah. Uh, the the uh, the cable. Uh, attachment to televisions was just starting. I didn't know anything about it until I I was doing my internship in, in uh, the last part of my grad school uh, period of time about cable. But uh, it it that was and that was 1980. That's why I'm mentioning it. Uh, that that was in 1980. And uh, but uh, yeah. Uh, 
it wasn't it, it wasn't as as big as far as you you had you had your local news and then you had international international uh, news program that would come on afterwards, and it's not as long as back during that time as it is today. I put it that way. Thirty minutes for the local and regional news, and another thirty minutes for national news, and that's it. Did you have anything else? That was it? No, that, that, that's it. That's it. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, were there other folks who had commentary to share? Maybe I heard. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, in regards to the uh, first victim, Parler Edwards, on uh, page 81 in the um, in the uh, downloadable text, um, Parler Edwards had taken a wrong turn and had met up with a person or persons um, who were not a part of his regular routine. Um, to me, from the earlier text, where someone said it was a couple guys who, well, they said it may have been a couple people, one or two people, White, they got into his cabin, 915. I'm still thinking it was more than one person for his, his abduction and murder. And um, in regards to Ernest Jones, um, uh, when he was found, he was found next to some trash cans. Well, I guess it's just how they think of black people in, as a whole, just trash. Um um, and they also said that um, I guess the Parler Edwards murder and Ernest Jones murder were were in hours of each other, and they were both found in the uh, by throughway entrance. I'm still thinking that it was more people involved in this. For uh, uh, these murders happened so close together in time, and and uh kind of be uh, dumped in similar locations. But that's it. Thank you, guys. Much obliged, sir. Uh, let's see. Any other folks? Commentary, observations? We'll double check, see if uh, anything stood out. Uh, while folks are waiting, the folks who emailed in, our investor, uh, one of them, he continues. Let's see. So this is with chapter six. Number two, uh, the organizers. Oh, we read that one. Number three, high profile death of a man. Oh, we read that one. Number four, Parler Edwards had been stabbed at least seven times. Only. Bless me. Oof. Parlor Edwards had been stabbed at least seven times. Only part of the heart remained. The rest was gone. When it comes to dismemberment, it takes someone who is psychologically on the evil side. What does it say about white culture since these types of acts are ubiquitously depicted in so-called entertainment, such as movies? Someone should write an updated sequel to The Delectable Negro. And how? Number five. Parlor Edwards had been arrested eight times, assaulted, and gambling, and later the same month for a promotion of gambling numbers are under mob control the people ultimately in charge are all racist 
white supremacists of everything. Uh, number six, in an uncharacteristic move, Edward Cosgrove, uh, it, for folks who are with us on Monday, he's one of the folks who the book is dedica- uh, dedicated to. Matt Greider dedicated to the book has his name right at the front, uh, victims, and then Edward Cosgrove and uh, Leo Donovan, I think was one of them, and some of the other prosecutors who said who worked so hard on this case. I thought, hmm. Uh, anyway, Cosgrove held a press conference. Uh, there's a terrible disservices done to the community when self-posturing, divisive, selfish ideas are tossed around for self-serving purposes. The police don't deserve it. Blacks don't deserve it. And whites don't deserve it. Though he declined to mention names, he acknowledged that some of the individuals to whom he was referring were speakers at Tuesday night's build meeting. He dismissed the suggestion that the murders were connected to the KKK or similar white supremacist groups. How not to connect conduct a press conference blame the victors speaker victims blame the victims speakers at build meeting dismiss their fears and give equivalency to white fear why not just say we are investigating all leads at this juncture why exclude a more organized effort of terrorism unless it was important to tamp down any suspicions among the black people in buffalo and thus preventing them from connecting the dots Let's see. Oh, we didn't get to the rest of it. So that's more to come in chapter six. Before I get to my notes, I'm going to hop back to the Buffalo Challenger just on all this about the numbers. Maybe this is a numbers racket and just uh, I am hopping ahead. She'll probably get to this in the book. I might be. In fact, let me see. Do I need to hop ahead? Is she going to get to this in the book? If she is, then I will hush my mouth. Uh, Let's see. Does she mention... Uh, yes, yes, I will hush my mouth because she does talk about Jimmy Carter's involvement in all this. I'll hush my mouth and we will just get that in time. Uh, let's see. Uh, I was reading or going to read the Buffalo Challenger one more time just because the numbers racket. And again, it's the importance of black journalists. I don't know if she quotes the Buffalo Challenger in her work or not, but Man, they have extraordinary archives. And again, while we're going through all of this, I want people to think Peyton Gendron charged with domestic terrorism today. Do we think he didn't know about this case? I'm telling you, I'm on the other side of the continent. I'm in Washington state. All I did was go to the library, University of Washington Library, no doubt, but go to the library without any money like I didn't have to pay any websites or anything or University of Washington no affiliation just making a couple of visits I have more than 150 articles on this case and there are probably many many more from that time period like 1980 through 1985 or so if you're in New York State it's even easier to get all this information so do we think Peyton Gendron who had researched white serial killers, Dylan Roof and the guy in New Zealand and all that. Do we think him being in New York driving distance from Buffalo? He didn't know anything about this and just happened out of coincidence to pick a Topps grocery store just like Joseph Christopher. That could be. I'm just going to say because I'm going to have to lean that I think he probably did know about Joseph Christopher. Could be wrong. We'll keep that in mind. But what I'm sharing from Buffalo Challenger. So 
This is October 23rd, so I'm a little bit ahead of where we are in this chapter because this chapter stops at October 19th. So a hair ahead, but only because the numbers. This report, front page, on the probe that isn't, the joke continues. Racist murders linked to numbers war. Officials were quick to negate possible Ku Klux Klan and Nazi involvement in the wave of vicious racist murders which recently hit this city and Mayor Griffin insulted the entire population on national television by trying to rid the city the city of good neighbors that's the nickname for Buffalo I guess of the murders of those black men found outside the city limits by stating that they weren't murdered in Buffalo his message was irresponsibly clear if the murders did not occur within the city, then the city could not be held responsible. Yet the presence of policy slips in the car of one of the two of policy slips in the car of one of the two taxi drivers who was murdered has resulted almost immediately in the theory that a numbers racket war may be linked to the deaths of Parker and Edward Parker Edwards Parler Edwards Edwards, and Ernest Jones we see this clearly as a diversionary tactic everybody wants to shift the focus wants to cloud our vision and despite the fact that we now have six composites to choose from we are not fooled there is no link they tell us between the 22 caliber slangs and the mutilation deaths of these two most recent victims must we remind authorities that Edwards and Jones were savagely beaten and their hearts removed from their bodies? Must we remind them that other eyewitnesses to racist attacks by a white man fitting the same description of the white man who shot down four innocent blacks told his victims that he hated niggers? Hate movements are alive and well in the USA. The numbers are a way of life in this community they have been ever since there was a black community there's that word again and since the legalization of the game local runners have reported a boom in business black people do not nor have they ever considered playing the numbers a crime quite the contrary so we don't buy the suggestion of criminal involvement placed upon our dead the real criminals are the racists who committed these atrocities and who will continue to commit them with the sanction of law enforcement agencies across the country white boys are picked up with 22 caliber pistols on them they are picked up based on their weird actions and similarity to to a host of composites a few have even confessed and everybody's been released the KKK and the Nazi party have been exonerated in fact the killers if ever caught will have an automatic insanity defense plea the police keep saying they're insane gotta remember all of this man you gotta remember all of this the authorities are taking extra care to protect the individuals questioned we have not seen one photo of any of those brought in for questioning and have only been informed of the name of one uh let's see do I need to give that one more 
Kenneth, yeah. This is about a black rapist to give comparison, but uh, a falsely accused black rapist, but it's 50,000 of those. Barbara Banks wrote this. Again, this is from October 23. So, hey, I might have just jumped ahead. She might quote from this article next week. We'll have to listen and see. Uh, Do I have any notes that I have to share from what we saw this week? Let me rewind from the second audio segment. Again, Buffalo Challenger is now community the Challenger Community News, Catherine Massey, one of the Peyton Gendron's victims uh, that he executed, she wrote for the Buffalo Challenger. Uh, let's see. The numbers game, sometimes called the Italian Lottery. I thought the Godfather, right? Anybody? Yeah. Um, and again, black people are not in charge of anything. Why is it the Italian Lottery? Why isn't it just white people? Different groups of so-called white people. Uh, let's see. Anything else that absolutely have to share from this week? The criminalization of the black victims, very common. It's kind of difficult to listen to some of all the gruesome details. That even stuck with me that maybe some white people might enjoy reading this book the same way you pass around lynching photographs because the details so macabre. Uh, She might have got access to some of the police reports. She could get a lot of graphic detail about the nature of the mutilation. uh, That all of the detail about the nature uh, of the murder is not in uh, Joey 22. Uh, Let's see. Mm Anything else? Gotta get in. Yeah, just keep this. Just like the Atlanta child murders, this case went on for a while. So it wasn't just that this case was widely reported. I can't emphasize that enough. The problem sometimes they'll say, like with Daniel Holtzclaw in Oklahoma City, it wasn't covered. That is not the case here. This case was widely covered, internationally covered. Some of the witnesses here were Canadian, so the Canadian press was covering this. The president talked about this. The problem was not, we just didn't hear about it, it wasn't on television. Wrong. Lots of detail, and again, if you want to do any research, lots to read even video content if you want to watch there's lots of material as I said just casual trips to the library I have about 160 sources any newspaper article that's mentioned in this book you can get easily probably from your computer right now for free check it out make sure she didn't leave out any pertinent details We'll be here tomorrow for Neutralizing Workplace Racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Compensatory call-in Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And Monday, white historian, Buffalo, Western New York. Cannot wait. We will talk about this. Casey, does she remember? Because I think she was born in this region. Do you remember Joseph Christopher? normal time let's go buffalo monday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific much obliged for all the folks who participated hopefully worthy of your time and energy uh all the craziness that's going on right now hopefully we are learning something and getting a grasp as to why gus has been sent oh yeah this is mandatory reading we have got to know more about this case connecting the dots 
sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy and maybe even changing up your routines a little bit too. Never know if you have some race soldier stalking you. But definitely sobriety. Um, Parlor Edwards, strictly sober, taking care of his health and what have you. That is us too. So at least we can be fully cognizant and alert uh, to offer ourselves the best defense if we should come under attack. Uh, and again, I would think if we got anybody out there that does like Uber or rideshare or anything like that, like, ooh, we, yeah, this is definitely something to read and think about. What is your code for safety if you're going to do that at all, especially late in the evening? All of that said, if you're in your vehicle, you are sober, buckled up, and not on your cell phone. Uh, make sure that you are paying attention to everything, everyone uh, around you, uh, and just doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. All of that said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.